Hello and welcome to a very special bonus episode of Into the Aether. It's a low-key video game podcast. My name is Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hogger. That was like the most NPR opening I've done in a while. We're going to quickly lose that energy the minute we talk about Ukus, but uh, here we are. Zant, 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 Zant. Anyway, yeah, we're here to talk about The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess, a game dual released for the GameCube and the Nintendo Wii. Uh, it was a launch title for the Nintendo Wii. Um, came out, I think, a little bit. Was it a little bit before on the GameCube or was it at the same time in both situations? I remember it being the same time, but if there was a distinction, it was like very quickly after. I should have I should have remembered that I have Wikipedia open and I could just look at it. But it weirdly came out. <laughs> so in, in the United States, it came out on the Wii first and then GameCube after that. Uh, not by oh, too much longer. It was like half a month, but still weird, weird to have them a little bit disconnected like that. Yeah, th- th- a few Zeldas have been kind of a strange bridge between consoles. Like Breath of the Wild was also that on the Wii U yeah. and the Switch. And like, I always, my tinfoil hat theory was like, do they do that to kind of make you want the new console? It's like, you see everyone having fun with Breath of the Wild on the go and you're like at home with your Wii U and yeah. you're like, fuck. Yeah. Even worse when you're holding the gamepad and you're like, this is almost a Switch. <laughs> <laughs> that I actually played Breath of the Wild on Wii U first, and it was truly like like a, a marketing dream from the not consumers end. Yes, not to immediately date this episode, but the current rumor is that they're gonna try and do the same thing, but with uh, Metroid Prime Four for the new Switch. So it'll dual launch on the Switch and the new Switch. Which I'm like, I mean, we've talked about Metroid a lot on this show, and like, is Metroid Prime really like a system seller on that level? I don't think so, like historically. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Anyway, Twilight princess to take us back to the mid 2000s that's sort of like when mars volta opened for red hot chili peppers it's like (laughs) maybe not like the one to lead with for this audience yes but i remember 2007 everyone was like mars volta sucks and i had to secretly just take it in the shadows the same year this game released i saw kanye west open for the rolling stones Oh, really? Which was how was that similarly like the crowd was not there for it, (laughs) which was wild. It was a wild experience to be in a stadium full of people like loudly upset that Kanye West was there, which, you know, in recent years makes a lot more sense. But at the time was like, (laughs) why why are these two together in the first place? (laughs) Which really does bring us in thematically to Twilight Princess pretty well. So I'm so excited for this episode. We've had to reschedule this a lot. We're finally here. Uh, This is also a rare treat in that I feel like. Whenever we do bonuses, we have a pattern of choosing games that, for whatever reason, I have a very strong personal history with and you haven't played before. Mm. It's not conscious. We don't like those aren't the ruling criteria for when we choose a game. But like it is exciting when one of us is coming in fresh and the other has like, you know, this is basically a religion to me. Yes. About this game. Yeah, exactly. And I, I had played Twilight Princess before. I actually got it on the Wii. I, I have a very, like, very clear memory of the time in which I played this game. It has been since 2006 since I had played it. So it's wow. this kind of ironic thing where I remember the time more than the game itself which also feels weirdly fitting for this adventure. But I think, you know, to kind of open the episode, we usually talk about our personal history with the game and with the series. If you listen to the show before, you know that both of us are huge Zelda fans. So we have to go too much detail into like why we love Zelda because we do and we say it almost every day. (laughs) But this is this is your big one. This is you've said this is your favorite and this is your entry point into the series. So I want to give the floor to you first. 
uh, and and just kind of hear like what this game did for you in terms of like onboarding you into Zelda and maybe even into like thinking about video games in a different way. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great setup because that's exactly what this game did for me. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I have talked on the show a bunch about like the lineage of Nintendo stuff that I've owned. So I, I've talked about, you know, growing up with the Sega Genesis and mainly playing like Sonic the Hedgehog and Comic Zone and Vector Man 2. And like those are the only games I played for a really long time. The three primary influences for Twilight Princess. Yeah, yeah. As as <laughs> Ionuma has stated in multiple yeah. interviews. Yeah, so like mainly playing the Sega Genesis and then, you know, I had the Nintendo handheld so i had a, a game boy color and then a game boy advance and a nintendo ds um and throughout all of that stuff i tried to pick up zelda here and there because i had just like heard about it over and over again obviously o- ocarina of time had come out and been like the biggest thing ever and as a kid who liked video games at all and would like talk to friends at school about video games i heard about ocarina constantly um yeah. and then eventually majora's mask and then wind waker on the gamecube and i jumped from the sega genesis when it came to home consoles i went from the sega genesis to the playstation 2 which is just like a huge leap <laughs> Just like yeah. as massive as possible. That's like waking up in the future, kind of like jump in technology. Yes. But in in that interim between those two consoles, as I mentioned, I was playing all these Nintendo handhelds and like trying to get into all of these different franchises that I kept hearing about. But, you know, they were the handheld versions of them. And that's not to say that they're any worse. We have covered the entire Game Boy Advance library. We've covered the whole Nintendo DS library. Like we we like those games and we like those systems a lot. But at the time when it came to Zelda specifically, I was like, I am not getting the thing that I am hearing about from this franchise from these handheld versions of these games. It wasn't until much later that I like really gained a reverence for all of that stuff but at the time i was like i feel like i'm not playing the thing that i should be playing you know and then i had a ps2 and and while i had the ps2 all of my friends had GameCubes, and they were all talking about wind waker and then eventually you know being excited about twilight princess coming out and at the end of the ps2's life cycle i was like i really want to get the nintendo wii the day it comes out i want to make the transition into nintendo stuff i want to be like a nintendo person you know i i never had any real like allegiance to any console the console wars are dumb we'll say it over and over and over again on this podcast just to make that perfectly clear but like i think for me at least I wanted to be on the ground floor of what seemed like was going to be something pretty cool for Nintendo. The Wii seemed interesting. A lot of people were like stoked about it. And it came out. I waited. Sorry, I traveled around New Jersey with my dad because he also wanted it. Like he was also interested in it because he's he's the person who got the Sega Genesis in the first place. It was technically his. And he's always had like kind of a little bit of interest in video games, never really like leaning into it fully as like a hobby hobby. But like, yeah, he would just like play like I know he got the Sega Genesis specifically because like I was a baby <laughs> and it was like a easy thing to do while like holding me. You know, it feels like both of our parents would have been really into games that they were born like seven years later. Yes. Like it just feels like they just missed it being like a main stream event you know like my parents like went to the arcades all the time and growing up like i remember my mom would would play mario kart with us or watch me play zelda and she would always be like i wish i had this as a kid Mm, which always made me a little bit sad but I was happy we got to share it together, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, to that effect, we drove all around New Jersey looking for the Wii on launch day, which, you know, famously, if you go up and look up articles from that time, like so difficult to find a Nintendo Wii at launch. And the Wiimotes also were like, you could not get an extra one. They were just sold out immediately. So it was really like you could get a Nintendo Wii. Maybe you definitely couldn't get a second controller. And we managed to we managed to find (laughs) a Toys R Us. At the literal edge 
between New Jersey and New York that had a line of like 48 people in it and they had 49 nintendo wii's and we we were the last <laughs> oh people in God. line and, and we got it that morning um and i came home with the nintendo wii the legend of zelda twilight princess and red steel which we will never do a bonus episode about <laughs> um, red steel was like the one two switch of the wii where it was like yes there's few enough games on this that this somehow works as, as a launch title yeah to show off the hardware from what i've heard tangent from what i've heard red steel 2 does kind of make good on the premise of what red steel 1 was supposed to be which i would be interested in checking out one day but sure not anytime soon so that day i get home i have the nintendo wii and i invite a bunch of my friends over we're playing wii sports obviously but we only have the one controller just like handing the controller around and then at a certain we pop in red steel realize it's bad immediately pop that out and then pop in (laughs) the legend of zelda twilight princess because we were all just like it's the new zelda and it looks cool it looks edgy it looks like adult isn't that sick and I think like me and the friends who I invited over just like all fell in love with it immediately. But my dad was also there and he was like, this looks amazing. Yeah. And I'm sure this is going to come up a lot, but like this is around the era of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, which is like obviously a huge inspiration on this and many other games at the time. And I just think for my dad and myself, this game was like everything. And he and I both had to, uh, we each had a save file on the Wii and we were each playing through it simultaneously, kind of being like, you know, sometimes in the mornings being like, did you do this dungeon yet? Did you do this dungeon yet? Like, have you finished this? Have you finished this? Um, And bouncing back and forth. It took him like eight times as long to finish it as it did me, which is not super surprising, but he did finish it, which I thought was amazing. Um, He really was like, I'm going to finish this game. And I remember sitting there watching him finish it and it was like miraculous. It was an incredible experience even though I had already seen it just like watching him do it was like so cool because to me it was like oh my god my dad's finally into video games for real now it ended up not being the case it was like Twilight Princess and nothing else really (laughs) but Zelda overall like because he's played he played the Link's Awakening remake right yeah he's he dipped into Skyward Sword when that came out um didn't get too far into that if I recall correctly um played got a Nintendo Switch similarly I I got a Nintendo Switch on launch day and I remember I drove to my parents' house to be like, check it out. It's the new Nintendo thing. And there's a new Zelda on here. And it's like a big open world game you can play forever. Maybe you'd be interested in that. And he was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. So then we similarly did the 2006 roundabout in New Jersey to like see if we could find a leftover Nintendo Switch, which again, just like the Wii, almost impossible to find. But in the intervening years between the Wii and the Switch, I had become known amongst a bunch of my friends as like the person who finds things. Like if there's a thing that's hard to get, I will find that thing and I will get it for you. And I was like, I'm going to find a Switch. I'm going to find a Nintendo Switch in New Jersey on launch day and you will have Breath of the Wild by the end of today. And I did it and he had it. And I don't think he played that much of it also. (laughs) But um, that's that's why I ended up getting him the Link's Awakening remake because I was like, this is a little bit more, I think, your speed. Like this is going to be like, it's kind of a more classic retro energy. It's pretty linear. I had also done a full Let's Play of it on our YouTube. So I was like, you could watch that if you need help, like getting through different pieces of it. So I don't know if he ever finished it, but I do know he played a pretty large chunk of it. But I don't think any Zelda has captured his his imagination the way Twilight Princess did at the time. I get that. I'm trying to contain my thoughts because I don't want to get too far ahead. You know, we're going to get into spoilers in the next Mm -hmm. section. The thing I kept thinking about when I first started this game is how cinematic it is. Yes. Um, Which sounds kind of like a buzzword, but I'm thinking about like we just did 
did or not too long ago in the summer we did our dreamcast episode which like yeah. that is an entire console that is biting off more than it can chew in mm-hmm. terms of like look at this technology we can have games feel like movies and in the cold ashes of the dreamcast the birth of gamecube and ps2 and xbox yeah and like as we're a year or two away from the first uncharted it just feels like the thing that was leading creativity in all games at the time was trying to be as cinematic as possible. Yeah. And in some cases to, to less successful degrees, like I think cut scenes are sometimes used in a negative tone of voice mm-hmm. when describing a game like, Oh, it's all cut scenes. And like, I do think in generations since this era of games, like people have learned how to make a game look and feel cinematic, but also still be a playable experience, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. not quite the Xenosaga episode one, watching an hour of cutscenes saving and then watching more cutscenes. Mm-hmm. You get things like Uncharted and like Last of Us uh, that, you know, have that cinematic high, but they and you never feel bored watching, you know, what's happening in the story. Yeah. And Twilight Princess, I think, really nails that too, way earlier than a lot of other games did in terms of feeling cinematic. It has a great handle on cinematography specifically, which I think is really interesting and it's something we should definitely lean into more later yeah it it is a small detail but i feel like there are so many moments in this game where like if you let a line of dialogue linger there's like eight more like beats of animation with that Mm. character you know like i i never really because you know in n64 it almost feels like you're getting an abstraction of the scene which i think works for those games because like we've often said an aspect of ocarina of time and majora's mask that feels unknowable and mythical yeah and i think wind waker is really the turning point where the games start to be a little bit more direct like the stories that clearly wanted to be told are able to be told in a more direct way with the hardware and with cutscenes. right so we start to get zelda games that are more dialogue driven and more kind of like speaking the quiet parts out loud which in some cases might, you know, I think you and I do in some ways prefer that like fable like quality to the games. Yeah. But I remember when we did our Majora's Mask and Ocarina episodes, a lot of the questions were like, was I just like deeply depressed when I played this or were they actually trying to explore these themes? And I think that's kind of a funny question because like I do think, especially with games, there can be a tendency to maybe like overread or add like too much heightened importance to something that maybe was just a simple story or like I don't want to tell anyone how to read a text but it's just like I think in an era where like video essays are the primary like leading YouTube thing mm-hmm. sometimes it's, it feels like are you just like searching desperately for a take right or like is this actually the thing you took away from the game I uh I woke up this morning at about 6 a.m after going to sleep at like one in the morning and I couldn't get back to sleep and I decided to spend my morning instead of going back to sleep researching people's most outlandish conspiracy theories about this game (laughs) yeah and there are some wild ones out there and it felt so much like exactly what you're describing like it feels so much like people either trying to make sense of the timeline of all the zelda games and trying to link them all together in a way that like the developers didn't even really want to do and i think begrudgingly did eventually in that book that they released or what you're talking about which is like reading into something so much past author's intent and that's not to say that you can't have that read but like ben over backwards to make the lore match their read which is i think another fascinating way of trying to experience a video game like this exactly but all that to say i think because there's that feeling of ambiguity to the n64 zeldas where it's 
you're never quite sure like is this the intention or am i just filling in the blanks i feel like twilight princess coming out when it did and being the way it is kind of cements that like yes that was intentional Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. those feelings you got that bittersweet feeling of growing up too quickly or the like frustration of being lost to your own inner demons or like just the horrors of puberty to be blunt like yeah all of that was in Majora's Mask and Ocarina, Twilight Princess is just like more explicitly saying it out loud and pointing to it. Yeah. Which I think is really cool because I think it just cements like we chose to do this episode one because we love Zelda and it's fun to talk about. But also in terms of having just done a Majora and an Ocarina bonus, I think you can make a case that Ocarina to Majora to Twilight Princess are sort of a very loose trilogy within the grander Zelda series. Yeah. And I, I we can, I think we should talk about that more when we start to talk about like where this game came from in the first place, because yeah. I mean, like the internal inspiration point for this game was Ocarina of Time and like trying to recapture that magic. So like it's it's no small surprise that there are a lot of allusions to those two games in this one um, and that they considered it while making it, I think, kind of the the conclusion of a trilogy or a loose trilogy. But uh, I think for me, at least at the time when I started playing this game, I was finally getting what I had heard from my friends yeah when they were talking about playing ocarina when they were talking about playing majora's mask um and to a lesser extent wind waker um which you know uh, i think one of the more interesting things about this game and wind waker and the relationship between the two is just like wind waker gets announced looks the way it does i think is like reviled immediately by the most hardcore fans because a couple years earlier nintendo had shown off a gamecube tech demo that had like an older kind of ocarina adult link with a more gritty edge to its art style and i think a lot of people were expecting that when they saw wind waker they were like oh yeah oh my god what is this and strangely not strangely because the game is great but like over the years after it had come out everyone was like wow this is incredible this is it's so totally good. flipped yeah, yeah it's yeah. aged beautifully yeah so like even a year or two after wind waker had come out people were like yeah you should really play this before you dunk on it and then twilight princess gets announced with like the most hype I don't even think it was E3, but it might have been E3. The showing and trailer and, you know, Miyamoto comes out with the sword and shield and stuff. It's like, you know, an all timer video game reveal moment in the industry. Everyone's like as hyped as humanly possible for that game. And then it comes out and people love it. And then unlike Wind Waker, a year or two later, people start to like turn their back on Twilight Princess in a pretty big way, which I think is fascinating. And now we're in this strange era where, you know, go onto YouTube and type in Twilight Princess retrospective and every single video that pops up is like the most underrated Zelda game. You know, it's like when you have 55 videos that are all 18 hours long saying it's the most underrated Zelda game, it's definitely not anymore. And I think the prevailing sense I'm getting, because I've done, you know, as you mentioned at the top of this, I have played this game a couple times. Um, You've played it before. And I was like, I want to have some kind of different experiences, but also get a lot more context for the way that this game has been discussed. So a lot of the time that I spent in between finishing it and now has been like digging through like game facts and all of these like think pieces that were posted on like personal blogs in like 2010 and all this kind of stuff. And it seems like the prevailing sense that people have now is like every Zelda game is great for the most part. Like I think even Skyward Sword people are turning around on in a pretty big way right now. I think there's this sense that like it's not what you expect every time. And that's kind of the beauty of the franchise in a big way. And at the end of the day, everyone seems to love every single one of them just to varying degrees. And like one of them will always be better for you personally than other ones. But 
you kind of have to be like, I respect the hell out of all of them in their own individual ways. And Twilight Princess, I think people are starting to now loop back around on going from this like, this is exciting to I don't think I like this and this is too linear and it's just a remake of Ocarina, et cetera, et cetera, to wait, this is brilliant. There's a lot of really interesting stuff going on here. Yeah, I've gone through my own version of that because I, I, I never disliked this game, but I've always sort of been like, middle of the road on it like mm. again i i consider every zelda game except maybe like the ds ones and zelda 2 to all be great and even yeah. those games are like good they're just less than in my opinion skyward sword i so wanted to be like the defender of and i'm like dousing is so bad otherwise great game <laughs> i just don't don't make me douse between dungeons unbelievable missed opportunity to not have a better control scheme for the switch release. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you really do need to like fight that game to finish it on the switch which is such a huge bummer because it could have been such a slam dunk i think i think if that game were easier to play more people would finish it and appreciate it a lot more i think so but but that aside i remember like when this game came out like you i had a lot of trouble finding a wii i remember distinctly that for this this makes me sound very spoiled i was very happy but i think this illustrates the point you were making earlier for christmas in 2007 i guess or the end of 2006 i got three wii games for Christmas. I got Twilight Princess, Super Monkey Ball Banana Blitz, which I always defend as being a good game despite everything, and Marvel Ultimate Alliance, but no Wii. So I had three Wii games. So I read the front and back of all the, like I read the instruction manuals. I, Hell yeah. I, I think it wasn't until February that we finally got a Wii in the house and I could play them. And I remember wow. there was a snow day where I, cause the Wii would like tell you to take a break and also tell you how long you've been playing. <laughs> yeah. And I remember I played had the that Wii. great graphic when you turned it on that like had a person swinging a Wii mode around and like smashing everything in their house. <laughs> it's like, don't do this. <laughs> in retrospect, it's like they just didn't want to get sued like yes. immediately. They're like, how do yeah. we like avoid getting sued uh, for all the broken TVs? But um, I, I played the Wii for 12 hours and I just kept switching between those oh, three hell yeah. games. So I remember really liking Twilight Princess. It also came out around the same time as Final Fantasy 12, which I also like really liked. And I, I remember that was just a time of a lot of different games. Kingdom Hearts 2 was also around the same time. So I feel like all three of those games, Kingdom Hearts 2 especially thematically, yeah. all kind of like melt into the same 2006 pool. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the light of oblivion came in and I was fucked. But uh, like, you know, I remember really liking it and I don't know if I finished it. I think I finished it in college, but I remember like playing it all the time. I remember bringing my Wii to New York City to visit my friends from New York, which was always like a fun thing to say when you're in New Jersey. Like, yes. oh yeah, my friends from New York know that band. Yeah. But I visited my friends from New York and we wanted to play Wii Sports and I only had one Wiimote. So I bought fucking Wii Play, the most Ooh. like, uh, like basically like shakedown game yeah. nintendo made where it's like you can get a wiimote but you have to pay more money to get this like shovelware tech demo yeah the like oh my god the twilight realm version of wii sports there were weirdly frequently wiimote shortages and that yes that was yeah. that was one of the ways that nintendo was able to capitalize on the shortage but I remember playing through the Temple of Time where you have the wand that possesses the statues. I remember playing that in front of all my friends in New York. And uh, I have very fond memories of this game. I remember finishing it. I remember really liking it. Up until recently, my my thoughts were always like, I loved what it was doing originally, but all the like stuff about Ocarina and kind of pivoting to being more like Ocarina held it back for me. Mm. Um, and I think... I would say, and I don't want to speak on behalf of literally everyone, but I would say one of the main reasons why a lot of people have turned on this game, one, 
I think like kids who grew up with this being their Ocarina of Time, because Ocarina of Time was my first Zelda. Right. And we're around the same age, but like people who grew up with, with Todd Princess maybe being their formative Zelda are like older now and joining the conversation in a more visible way. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, one of the things was like when Twilight Princess existed in a pre Breath of the Wild world, when the most recent Zelda is Skyward Sword and even though that game reviewed very well and sold pretty well, I imagine being on the Wii, that was the point where a lot of people were very like adamantly against like Zelda being the same thing over and over again. It was like embers of what we hear about Pokemon now constantly. Right. Skyward Sword comes out and people are like, is this really all Zelda can be? Like this is the same year Skyrim comes out. Mm -hmm. Coincidence. (laughs) Like, is this it? For Zelda, right. like we get an item in a temple, we use the item to beat the boss. I think Skyward Sword has a lot unique to itself that is wonderful, and I think people have come to appreciate in more recent years. I've done fan art of Groose, and I have an amiibo of Zelda, so like there's great stuff in that game. But like I, I think that was the point where it was like, oh, this is getting really repetitive, and I think the major issues that still plague Skyward Sword are present in Twilight Princess. Mm-hmm. So I think in a time where the open world Zeldas have yet to come out Twilight Princess is seen as sort of the beginning of the end by some people where it's like yeah this is the first Zelda that really didn't take big swings I think it does but I think the conversation at the time was like this is maybe too safe even though ironically everyone wanted Ocarina 2 I read Nintendo Power at that time and everyone was like I'm not buying Wind Waker because it's not cool I want cool Zelda you know we got cool Zelda and then suddenly it was like instantly forgotten yeah but then open world Zelda comes out and is now like the foreseeable future of the series in a world where that shift has happened suddenly Twilight Princess is no longer the beginning of the end but it's a swan song of this style of Zelda that no longer exists I think that's like once you see it under that lens which like would be impossible in a time where like we didn't know what the future of the series would be. Mm-hmm. I think it becomes a lot more sacred and special because there aren't that many Zelda games like this anymore. Right. I yeah, I, I had kind of a roundabout experience playing all the Zelda games, as I've talked about on the show before. But Twilight Princess being the first one like this that I played was a very magical experience. But I think with all of that context that you just brought up, like I could totally see why the, the fan base that had been around since like, well, Ocarina arena was starting to feel a little bit stale at that point and and when you say that some of the problems that are present in skyward sword are present in twilight princess i totally know what you mean also like i i will say you know i love this game to death i think you know it is like one of the most formative games i think in my life um and i mean you even just bring it up alongside kingdom hearts 2 is like man those two games were like made for me at that time because i mean they are made for people of that exact age exploring those exact themes of the kinds of angsts you go through at that time yeah this feels specifically like teenage zelda yes i think they they absolutely recognize that like the kids who played ocarina are now angsty teenagers you know i was 17 when this game came out i was in the like center crosshairs of this game's marketing yeah but i think they really seize that opportunity to one make a link that feels very actually teenaged Mm mm-hmm I think he's canonically 17 in this. Right. And it's funny because in Ocarina of Time, like you play as childhood Link, who's like, I don't think he's given an age, but I have always assumed he was like 11 or 12. Yeah. Uh, And then adult Link is probably like actually also only 17. Yes. But man, does his life feel like an adult life? He loses everything he held dear to him and has to fight zombies. Right. And this feels (laughs) like 
actually how being a teenager feels. Yeah. Um, where I think we'll get more into this as we talk about spoilers, but I think the one, I, having replayed this game for this episode, I love it. I think it's really special. It's definitely risen in the ranks of Zelda games for me. And I think one of the reasons why is it's exploration of the central ideas of power and courage yeah. and empathy, really. I think this game is like solely focused on empathy. And this link feels the most dependent on an ensemble of characters. Yeah. And there's this constant idea that like it almost defies the chosen one aspect of Zelda a lot because like, yes, Link is courage, Zelda is wisdom and Ganon is power. But I think the game kind of purposely shows how easily people can be corrupted and changed and how nothing is really set in stone. Yeah. And how like even the villains are people that are lost. And I think Link often wins, quote unquote, by actually connecting to others and being selfless. I mean, the group of kids in Ordon Village that he kind of inspires to be better versions of themselves is so beautiful. And it's something that you don't really see. Like, you get that in Breath of the Wild where there's sort of this, like, land injured by calamity slowly rebuilding and healing. But it does feel like Link is this, like, cosmic force that's setting it all right. Mm. Whereas I think the Link in Twilight Princess feels really human and really, like, I don't think he would really be able to do anything without Minna and without the other people in his life, even the kids, you know, yeah. I think like everyone has a really important role to play. And I like how that extends to the temples too, where like without, we'll talk about this more in the second part, but like every temple either has characters that need to come together mm -hmm. to solve whatever the conflict is or contraptions that need to come together like everything <laughs> is rooted in this idea of unity and some of them you know are more successful than others i love the monkeys but like after a while i'm like how many monkeys do, we, do i need there are, there are a lot of monkeys there are a lot of monkeys but like snow peak temple i think is the one that's stuck around in a lot of people's hearts and minds for good reason because that yeah that temple just i think is is the eye of the duck of that theme for me, <laughs> of like this is how easily a good person can become quote-unquote evil and also like the key is not a literal key but is helping them yeah which is beautiful i, th I think it's a very simple message but i think communicating that through traditional zelda dungeons i think is what makes this game so special and also like i don't know it just has a very distinct sense of character like despite its like emo-ness and its darkness it's a exceedingly warm Warm game. I think mm -hmm. of, of of this trilogy, this is clearly the like Return of the Jedi of the Ocarina, Majora, Twilight Princess. And I think that it feels the most uplifting to play. Like there's a tragedy to Ocarina. And Majora's Mask, even though it ends on like a hopeful note, it's so deeply disturbing. Yeah. And this game, I think, does have its darker moments, but I think the takeaway I have from it is just warmth and and heart. Yeah. One of the reasons. I wanted to do this bonus after Majora's Mask because we, we played Majora's Mask and that game was like revelatory. I, we're, we're slowly whittling down the Zelda games I haven't played. Uh, and, yeah. and after playing through Majora's Mask for the first time and doing that bonus, it was like it does feel thematically like the end of a trilogy. And, and I think one of the interesting things about Ocarina to Majora to this is I, I think the three of those games are thematically focused, whereas I would consider the other Zelda games 
at least the ones that I've played thematically dense, if that makes sense. Like there, there are a lot of there are a lot of themes and a lot of ideas being explored in all of the Zelda games. But I think that these three in particular, the unifying thing for all of them, I think, is that I have walked away from playing each of them for bonus episodes for this podcast being like, I could tell you like in a sentence exactly what this game is going for yeah. thematically. Yeah. And this one does feel like it is wrapping a bow around and like making good on some kind of loose thematic threads left lingering in Ocarina Majora, which I think is really beautiful and really great. And and what I was going to say before is like, I, I've always loved this game. I think it's amazing. I, I, you know, played it when it came out. I then played the re-release on the Wii U, which I don't actually think I finished um, <laughs> because when, when they released the Wii U version, it's just, this is also when Amiibos came out and they started doing the thing that everybody universally hates except Nintendo, which is they locked <laughs> features in the game behind Amiibos. Yeah, that's why I got the Zelda one for Scarlet Sword because you can't fast travel without it. It's also a cool Amiibo. But still. it's an amazing amiibo, but yeah, the, to lock fast travel behind an amiibo is like patently ridiculous. Uh, That's Javik DLC levels. Of, it really of is. Yeah. yeah. I just learned the new Like a Dragon. Also, you have to get the deluxe edition if you want New Game Plus, which is wild. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Yes. Yeah, so the Wii U version of this game comes out, Twilight Princess HD. And I remember we were trying to start a video game website at the time. And I wrote an article, I think before it even went live. But, you know, we were just like testing out the, the CMS and all this stuff. Um, and I wrote an article reporting on this specifically because it was like around the time that the souls games were starting to really like build up a lot of hype and momentum and like you yeah. know the from soft engine was like really kind of kicking into high gear and two of the amiibos i think it was the ganondorf amiibo and the twilight princess link amiibo that they released for smash brothers if you use the ganondorf amiibo it made every enemy hit twice as hard and if you use the link amiibo it meant that every i think all the damage you took was also doubled so if you used both of those amiibos you were essentially creating like a dark souls version of twilight princess for yourself and they also included with the wolf link amiibo like a super hard version of the cave of shadows which i think is called the cave of ordeals in that game and i was like i just remember writing this article that was just like if you use all three of these amiibo you will have the most hardcore zelda experience nintendo <laughs> has ever approved and like maybe this is an accident to include this but it's cool that it exists for somebody and i was like okay so the obvious follow-up to that article is to try that and I did and it was a nightmare <laughs> and I did not make it very far I don't even think I made it like to the Goron mines it was brutally difficult so I never finished Twilight Princess HD I don't know of many Zeldas that I would want that like the only one that interests me is is doing Breath of the Wild's like harder version because yeah. I've enjoyed this sort of like roguelike trials Yes. in in the dlc and like having to start like okay you have no weapons no armor like make it work yeah but i like i think the combat in this game is good and again credit or credits due wind waker is the foundation of modern zelda combat anytime you enjoy combat in <laughs> Twilight princess or any game after are you a zelda combat enjoyer tip your hat to the seas my friends yeah. all started the enemy is exploding into spoils wind waker it did everything <laughs> i was thinking a lot like i think wind waker is like notably not being considered in sort of like the themes and visuals and music of Twilight Princess but both Wind Waker and Twilight Princess are kind of about following up a legacy and tradition mm -hmm. which I think is interesting you know I, I I think it might have been on Majora or maybe even the Ocarina bonus where we talked about how every game after Ocarina before Skyward Sword is about being a sequel to Ocarina of Time in yeah. a different way like I think one of the many ways you can read Majora's Mask is just the stress of following up Ocarina and being given like a year 
year to make a game, which shows up in just like the three day cycle in the moon. You know, not to say that that's what it's singularly about, but like you can feel that in the game when you play it. At least just like yes. stress is the leading emotion of that as we, game. As we talk about in that bonus, there are characters who feel like literal and obvious stand-ins for the development staff who are yeah. like crying out for help to you, the player. And Wind Waker, meanwhile, I think is about like I, I've mentioned this many times the link in that game is given Link's tunic by his grandma to like put on on like a holiday and he's embarrassed like when he does the like I got an item his face is like oh like, yeah. I don't want to wear it. like you're basically dressing me up like George Washington like on you know like 4th <laughs> of July <laughs> like yeah. why would I wear this so I think in in many ways Wind Waker both you know again all the timeline is what it is but I think these games do specifically reference Ocarina of Time in the game so I think yes. you can consider them as part of the timeline. It's part partially why it began in the first place. But Wind Waker is about being in the far future of the Zelda world and looking back and realizing you're connected in some way and making a future that's unique to yourself. Recognizing like this world isn't the same anymore, but I have this role to play and what does my future look like in a world that has maybe denied me this path. Mm. And I find that really powerful. And that's one of the reasons I love that game. And Twilight Princess is kind of similar in that it's about every character in this game, like Link, Midna, and Zant are in the shadow of their respective counter. In yeah. some cases, literally. Right. Uh, and I think whereas Wind Waker has kind of this bravery of like, we're going to defiantly, both as a game and as these fictional characters, be a new thing. Twilight Princess is almost burdened by the past and is ashamed to be part of it and a lot of it is about recognizing you don't have to be the thing history demands of you yes which i think is is a similar theme but i think it's it hits really hard uh you know i i think this game the cutscenes in it again cutscenes can be a bad word but every cutscene in this game made me cry a little bit uh it's it's a really emotionally raw game and i and i appreciate like again while i miss the fable style i think this game having the confidence to just say what it's about i think is really powerful yeah i don't think it loses the the fable and kind of legend aspect of it though which is one of the things that i walked away from this playthrough being like okay i know this one's like more cutscene heavy more lore and story direct uh and and i was i was curious how much they were going to capture that because you know going back to when we played ocarina for that bonus i mean that was like the main takeaway for me it was like so much of this is so amorphous and ambiguous and purposefully so that it's the only zelda game that feels to me still like it is actually a, a tale being told and like passed down campfire to campfire to campfire and eventually made its way to my 3ds somehow um <laughs> and as all things do as eventually. all things do yeah uh just like pushmo and <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I thought I was gonna be able to skate right past that after saying it. I wasn't. <laughs> just like gobbling up hallucinogenics and seeing Zeus tell me about Pushmo, <laughs> scribbling it down. It's a puzzle, but it's 3D. <laughs> he pushes. He pushes. <laughs> Sometimes he pulls. Um. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Twilight Princess, I think, does a really good job of imbuing its pretty like direct story with that same sense of legend and legacy as you were saying like literally the the looming shadow of everything that has come before but that is i think literalized and also kind of left up to interpretation via a lot of its world design and a lot of its like dungeon designs yeah. you know like yeah. the arbiter's grounds 
you go through that dungeon and you're like, okay, I'm in the Arbiter's Grounds. And as soon as you stop for a second and think about what are the Arbiter's Grounds, it's like there are four or five different versions of what that could be that pop into your head. And they're all like valid and interesting takes, I think. And you could read that a bunch of different ways. Um, I think there's a pretty definitive one. But I think at, at, at the end of the day, like there are a bunch of ways you can interpret a bunch of different things that happen in this game and how they may or may not connect to the previous games. And I don't even think they need to. And I think that ambiguity is important to this series for me. I think that's one of the things that works so well about Breath of the Wild specifically for me was I, I, I think it's another one that despite spending so much time being like, hey, there's voice acting in this. There are cutscenes. There are characters who are going to like hang out with you, et cetera, et cetera. There's so much of that world that's left up to interpretation, left up to mystery. And even though they're like, yeah, there was a big war and we decommissioned all this weird technology. There are still so many lingering questions about that, that eventually, you know, some got answered in Hyrule Warriors and other stuff. But um, I think Twilight Princess, to me, feels like the platonic ideas. Steven is holding up Age of Calamity. Oh, I forgot you got a copy of it recently, right? Yeah, I just got it for Christmas, actually. Yeah, I awesome. play this soon. Yeah, I, I think Twilight Princess does an extremely good job of towing the line between being direct in its storytelling and also leaving enough up for you that you will like wake up in the middle of the night and be like, what about this, though? I agree. It also has like... You know what? I'll save this for part two because it'll be a spoiler, but okay. I totally agree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just say like playing through this game again. So so sorry, a point I've started and not finished like eight times already, but played this game on the Wii, loved it, didn't finish it on the Wii U. So this is actually the second time also for me that I played through the entire game and I finished it. I think it was around December. And then I, I've actually played through half of it again on the Odin 2, just because I was like, it's amazing that I can do that. So I just it's just what I've been doing recently. And I think it's probably still my favorite Zelda. And I don't yeah. I don't think it's just because it was the first one like this that I played anymore. I don't think so either. I mean, not to speak on your behalf, but like we talk about games every week and we have for five years. So I think I know your taste pretty well. And when this game opened, I immediately felt like, oh, this is this is something that would connect with Brendan. Yeah. And finishing it too, like it just feels like I have found that you like uh, fiction that is kind of a deconstruction and an examination of its own legacy. Yeah. And this feels very much like that. You know, this feels like let's, you know, explore, you know, being in the shadow of this history. Yeah. And as you opened the episode with when you, when you threw it to me initially, it's like, yeah, this, this is like really the beginning for me, I think of thinking about games critically at all, you know, like having, having a, a sense at all that like, I will stay up late thinking about this game and like asking questions about what things mean. And that definitely starts with like the lore stuff, because I think that's the easiest thing to like dip into. But then you start to ask larger questions about like theme, which is not a thing that I had done when playing Sonic the Hedgehog or Comic Zone, <laughs> um, but is a thing that definitely lingers at the top of Twilight Princess and asking myself, like, why is this game affecting me so much at this time? I mean, I, I've talked on and off on the show, but not really super directly about like the depression I've dealt with my whole life. And it just felt like this was a game made for I don't want to be this reductive, but it felt like a game made to connect with people who are dealing with depression at this age specifically. Yeah. Um, and I think for me also at the time, it was like I was a freshman in high school. I think it was that year, if I'm not mistaken. And it was like the beginning of me, to be perfectly blunt, really disappointing a lot of people. It was like the beginning of me doing really horribly in school, despite everyone being like, Brendan's so bright. Why is he failing all of these classes? It was the beginning of me being a really bad student. I had really bad insomnia. I was sleeping like one or two hours a night. And man, like Twilight Princess just really spoke to me. And uh, it was... Definitely a, 
a difficult experience going through and playing it again. I played most of it like in a really solitary way, like in this room on my computer, just because it was like some of the scenes and sequences are like actually hard to get through. But I I love this game so, so much. And uh, I'm glad we're doing this episode. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I mean, we said before that a lot of Zelda games, especially the 3D ones, feel like they are equipping a younger audience with being comfortable with sadness. Yeah. And I think this one is like leading with that the most. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I, I feel like, again, the ambiguity of the storytelling in the 3D ones, like I imagine there might be someone listening to this episode being like, what on earth are you talking about? I play these games for the dungeons. Like, what is this? <laughs> right. And yeah. I think you can meet these games at that level. If you're just playing yes. for like fun puzzles and that, like you will get that experience. Yo, if you want what are, I, I think unequivocally, I, I think this is objective. It, just some of the best dungeons ever made in a Zelda game with some of the best boss fights. Like just play this one and you'll have a good time. Turn your brain off. This is, this is weirdly a great starting point still, I think, I think so. for yeah. Zelda. I think it gives you a bit of language. Like there's a, enough of an open world. You get a sense of like, that exploration yeah the dungeons are all like a spring breeze i'm just like ah this is the only game that has a water dungeon that doesn't feel like getting pink eye in terms of my enjoyment <laughs> of playing it uh it's so like good. bed temple is yeah. a is so lovely I, I have some more specific thoughts we'll save for later but yeah i, th I think like going back to the ambiguity of the, of the n64 zeldas i just think like well, while story and theme and atmosphere were very present in those games, and I think that's why they've stuck with people for so long, I think this game feels like a recognition of what the secret strengths of Zelda have always been. Yeah. And also specifically what 3D Zelda can accomplish. Because I think like it's clear that the, the 2D Zeldas kind of get designated to the Game Boy, and they're purposely lighter in tone. And, mm -hmm. the, and they're, they're also wonderful in their own way. I think Minish Cap is like one of, I think, the most underrated Zelda game. But they're not teaching you about depression and the way that like yes. Tyler princess is so i think this game feels like a recognition of legacy in multiple ways yeah i think so too total total emotional left turn here i just realized that neither of us have said it yet but we both played the gamecube version of this game yeah i was gonna <laughs> i was gonna start <laughs> having played it on the wii first though i didn't mind like if you do for some reason want to play this on the wii i think it's actually like unlike skyward sword which i think the one-to-one -one sort of controls can kind of get to you after a while yeah yeah. This game treats the, the motion controls pretty light. Like you just waggle the Wiimote to swing your sword and you can aim with the bow with your Wiimote. But we both play the GameCube versions, as you said, and that's the version I would recommend unless you have the HD for Wii U. Yes. Um, or if magically they finally port them to Switch. That's where you should play it. God, it's killing me. <laughs> Honestly, like one of the reasons I think we've held off on doing this episode and a Wind Waker episode for so long is because the rumors of that have been, I mean, actually on, on the Wikipedia page right here, you know, under releases, it has the Nintendo Wii releases, the GameCube releases. And it also says in China on, in, on December 5th, 2017, Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess released on the Nvidia Shield TV, which at the time was a one of the only ways that Nintendo games were being released in China at all, just due to their laws and everything going on there. But the other side of it was a lot of the basis and the foundational elements and architecture, like hardware and software architecture of the NVIDIA Shield TV is present in the Switch. So it's literally been since December of 2017 <laughs> that people have been like, they already made the port. It's already good to go and runs on the switch. Where is it? Um, yeah. And I just, I just think that you and I have assumed that was going to happen literally at any moment. Uh, and at a certain point we were like, okay, we're going to do the GameCube bonus for our big July season premiere. 
um, later this year, now is the time for those two games. Yeah. Regardless of what Nintendo has planned. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it will come out the minute we wrap up recording the Wind Waker bonus, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Wait, the, the follow up there. The weave, the, I, the one thing about the Wii version, it's so so easy to get your hands on and it's still really cheap that's the big difference here like the gamecube version you and i played we were very lucky to be able to play that but like the wii version is plentiful because they needed to make enough of them to launch with the wii which they knew was going to be a smash hit and obviously was and like just sold gangbusters and the attach rate between the nintendo wii and twilight princess was huge so they needed to keep up with that demand so there are a lot of printed copies available for the wii that said i think personally the Wii U version is probably the one to go with if, but you know, that means getting a Wii U and finding a copy <laughs> of this game, which is difficult. So I'm really hoping that the switch version comes out, but the thing about You've the Wii U version. You've talked me out of getting a Wii U more than once in our course of doing this show. Yeah. I, I basically just for these games, I've been impatient enough. I'm like, should I just get a Wii U? And you said, don't get a Wii U. <laughs> Yeah, one of these days we'll probably do it. I've also considered it on and off. I have a couple Wii U games still, but uh, that version of the game is so good. I know people seem to have soured on it. Like, again, doing a lot of research and looking into a lot of people's conversations about this game, it seems like people have soured on that HD remake versus the Wind Waker HD remake. Um, do you know what the changes are for Twilight Princess? Yeah, so one of the one of the more interesting ones is um, between the GameCube and the Wii version, which you and I know, and our friend Dom Nero brings up a lot, uh, is that Link is canonically left-handed in most of the games, but in the Wii release, because most people in the world are right-handed and they wanted it to feel like when you waggle the Wiimote around, uh, Link is doing what you're doing, even though it wasn't one-to-one, but still, um, they, instead of flipping Link's character model, they flipped the entire game. They mirrored the whole game. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the whole game is backwards, which uh, I think we got some questions about. But uh, just to answer that question now, yeah, I have the Wii version of this game burned into my head and it was so confusing to play the GameCube version. Also, shout out to anyone who ever wrote a walkthrough for this game because yes. you had to basically <laughs> think about both versions yes. and distinguish like go left or right or, you know, whatever direction. Yo, guides, editors and guides writers, the the unsung heroes of, of the game's press for real. Uh, yeah, that, that this was a difficult one to write. Um, the Wii U version, the HD remake does a really fascinating and I think wrong thing, uh, which is... <laughs> The GameCube, ver I think I'm getting this right, but the GameCube version, so the version of the game where the sword is in Link's left hand is hard mode and the Wii version is easy mode and they, they have difficulty built into the game and you have to pick one or the other uh, and that will determine literally all of the directions of how everything works in the entire game, which is So you can't absurd. play left-handed unless you're on hard mode. Correct. That's so bizarre. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. One of the other things that I think is notable, um, and it, this is a strange... Okay, actually, this used to be notable for me, and then I did more research and learned it's not at all. Um, but one of the things that they talked about in the promotion of that game and why I was so excited about it was, I, I think, you know, there are a lot of really long extended gameplay sequences in this game. And I think that's one of the things that you and I are talking about when we say like some of the problems in Skyward Sword are present in this game as well. There are some sequences that just take forever. One of those things that everybody always points at is when you are Wolf Link and you need to kill a bunch of bugs and get their seeds of light, quote unquote. <sighs> There are yeah, it's it's bad. It's not fun at all. There are 16 in each of those sequences that you need to get in the GameCube version and the Wii version on the Wii U version. They reduce that to 12, which sounds great. What I have learned in the interim 
is that the ones that they got rid of, the four that they got rid of are the ones that are doubled up. So you know how sometimes they'll go into a place and there'll be two bugs in one spot and you need to get both of them and then you move on? They've just reduced those two to one. So it actually doesn't <laughs> reduce the amount of time you need to spend collecting bugs or going to different places literally at all. They just got rid of the duplicates, uh, which I yeah. think is hilarious. They also, as I mentioned, added the Cave of Ordeals, which is like a really, really difficult uh, extra dungeon that they added to the game, which is very cool. I've never experienced it because I never made it that far, but would like to one day uh, if they release the Switch version. I would hope it comes with that. And I, I think there are a couple other things here and there. Oh, yeah. One of the things um, that is a blessing and a curse. It's, I think it's a curse now, but was a blessing at the time. One of the strange things about this game that I, I think is really for like forum lurkers specifically or people who know it way too intimately like you and I do now is the the rupee economy is like totally out of whack. Oh, you yeah. just find so many rupees everywhere and you constantly are at a max wallet and there's like really not enough to spend that stuff on the wii u version does a really good job in that it replaces a lot of those rupee chests with and this is the kicker stickers for Miiverse, which no longer exists <laughs> so at the time when it came out it was amazing because you would get a bunch of cool stuff you could throw up in Miiverse, and it also balanced out the economy of the game and made money worth something which was actually really useful for that game and kind of balanced it out in a way that it wasn't initially uh but unfortunately now that means nothing because <laughs> you just get something you can't use so one of the optional items in Twilight princess is magic armor which essentially makes it so that when you get hit you lose rubies instead of taking damage yes so I'm like, was that an idea first? And that's why there are so many rubies everywhere. Or was that added later because they recognize like there's way too much money in this game. Currency needs value. And they yes. added that. I, I have no idea. Yeah. I, I don't know what other additions they added outside of the Amiibo stuff. Uh, I'm not totally sure. Uh, and I'm I'm not going to look it up, honestly, because I think that'll make for a great conversation if the Switch version ever comes out. Yeah. Uh, but those ones in particular, I think, are fascinating. Yeah, I'm curious. to. I, I still haven't played Wind Waker HD, and I know that for that they changed the sailing time because yeah. a common complaint was how long it took to sail to places. I personally loved that, so I'm curious if I will actually not love that change either. But yeah. Regardless, getting those both on Switch would be awesome. Yeah, I, I'm excited to play the GameCube version when we do that. It should be noted. I don't think I've said this also directly on this episode, but I have not played Wind Waker. It's like one of the ones I still haven't played. Yeah. Really excited to do that. We'll do that on the GameCube. But I have played a little bit of the HD version on, on the Wii U, and it looks stunning. It's just so beautiful. But on that note, in terms of like things that take a long time, I think one of the main complaints about this game is its opening. Oh, yeah. Which I'm just curious how, how you feel about because it. it takes like two hours to get to the first temple. Honestly, why don't we take a break here and then talk about this in the spoiler section? Because I feel like we're... That sounds good to me. There's always a point, a bonus, where we're like bubbling into spoiler zone. I'm like, yeah. let's maybe distinguish this. So That's a good idea. Take a break. Uh, just a heads up. The next section will be spoilers for the whole game. Todd Princess. See you soon. Bye-bye. back just a heads up this will be a spoiler conversation how did i feel about word on village you asked uh yes i, I think overall this game has a pretty slow start I, I i have to say like even though i was enjoying it i think the first dungeon and like everything leading up to it feels the most like the pitfalls of a game that would be called cutscene heavy in 2006 mm. like 
Ordon Village has a lot of like, talk to the mayor about this one thing, then walk here to trigger a thing, then walk back. There's a, there's a lot of backtracking in a way that isn't fun. But what it does endears you to that setting. And I think I think I'm not against the time it takes in being there. I think that does pay off weirdly and eerily similar to the opening of Kingdom Hearts 2 with Roxas and like the friends there. It feels I mean, the minute I got that vibe, I'm like, I know why Brendan loves this yeah, so much. Yeah, yeah. My tinfoil hat theory is that <laughs> Nomura was like somehow involved in this game, like in the distance, like Ghost Rider or something. I love it just that. feels it feels so much like and it's ironic to thinking about 2006 Brendan not yet getting into Dragon Quest or Final Fantasy because I'm like this is the most Final Fantasy Zelda has ever been. Mm. There is there is a bar of rebels. There's a big sword. <laughs> there's amnesia. Like it's basically FF7. Yeah, Midna might as well be an Organization 13. Like it's just all good. <laughs> but anyway, Ordon Village. I just think like that part of the game feels the most like it is a GameCube version of the weaker parts of Link's Awakening where it's like use a hat to get this to happen or like use your fishing hook to get a cat to go to this specific point. Mm. So like, Oh yeah, I get what you mean. Yeah. The, the like point and clicky vibe. Yeah. In a way that the rest of the game doesn't feel like that at all. You know, it just, it really like, it's just Ordon village that yeah. has that, like, what do I do? Part of it. I, I feel like I probably spent longer on Ordon village than most temples. Yeah. It's about uh, the first time I went through it. Um, I guess it was in November when we were first playing it. It was probably like two and a half hours. And then the second time through, I was like, let me see if I can go a little bit faster. And it still ended up being two hours. Yeah. So I, I think what it does is it establishes this link as an everyman, you know, yeah. and I think like it is kind of genuinely horrific and in some ways surprising, even though it's on the cover of the box, that he becomes Link and also becomes a wolf. Like yeah. it feels like he has two transformations in that way. So overall, I I don't hate it. I honestly would have preferred if it was just cutscenes, mm. but I think overall the game really pops off in the second half. In general, you can kind of like uh, see this game as two halves. There's the fused shadow part where like, yeah, you know, Hyrule is cloaked in Twilight and Link is cursed to be a wolf. And that's when you meet Minna, who at first is like Skull Kid. Like, and yeah. that's I didn't remember that because I remembered the latter half of this game more directly. Minna is like, I, I think if you're playing this for the first time, I wouldn't fully trust that she is a benevolent sidekick. You know, like she's telling you to get this stuff, the fused shadows that every god of light warns you not to get. Yes. And it feels I mean, this is where it feels very much like a nod to Ocarina, where it's like everything you do as Child Link, spoilers for Ocarina, basically opens the gateway to Ganondorf seizing control of everything right. and making Hyrule a nightmare. It's also worth mentioning the last. So the, the story of the Fused Shadow is uh, a bunch of like dark mages got together and created a mask that could kill God, uh, yeah, which <laughs> right. the last time we heard that story was in Majora's Mask. Yes. Literally and the I, same story which I think is fascinating. It does, it does, as much as this game is, is thinking about Ocarina, it does, again, going back to the trilogy, it feels like it's taking elements from both very directly. Yes. Like Zant, our lord and savior, feels like Majora. <laughs> And the way he fights, like this is weird, twisted, like like that yeah. nature. The way he like moves around and the kind of like alien aspect to his character. Even the music when you fight him, which is sick. Zant, I wasn't prepared for Zant to actually be a cool villain. That was like the biggest jump scare of doing this whole episode. Is yes. like, oh, Zant's like 
a good character. Zant is like a character study. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> We've memed him to death, but Zant is is by all means a thrilling villain. I, I remember playing this in high school and college and being disappointed when Zant kind of got pulled off the stage for Ganondorf. I will just say I have totally turned around on that decision. I think it like works. I, I think I forgot the the nuance of it and just remembered mm. the major beats. Yes. And I think it works way more than it doesn't. But um, the first half of the game is getting, you know, going to three temples and getting the fused shadow. So Minna could basically stop Zant. And Minna in that time is very selfish. And, you know, she's like a trickster. Like you can t- like they slowly grow to trust each other. But like before the sort of definitive act two of the game, like, I think she has kind of a skull kid energy to her. Yeah. The part of the game I totally forgot. I don't know how I forgot this, but basically kind of like how childhood ends with Ganondorf just seizing control of everything. When you get the three fused shadows, Zant is just like, just shows up, which is genuinely scary. Yes. The few shadows mean nothing to him. And he offers Minda like, here's your last chance to join my side. Yeah. And you learn that the the whole Twilight Realm are the descendants of those mages who like got good enough at magic to trap God. Yeah. That the goddesses of Hyrule were like, absolutely not. You're all banished to the Twilight Realm. Right. Zant is in some ways kind of a tragic villain where he's like, our people were scorned by the gods. Like my goal is to unite the world in darkness, which is always a good uh, a good selling point from a villain yeah the one of the best lines that he has or not sorry not best but one of my favorite lines that he has is something to the effect of like i want to merge light and shadow and fill the world with darkness and i'm like that's not how that works man yeah exactly (laughs) it's sort of like a ceo being like i want to do what's best for the company and specifically for me yeah (laughs) men of course objects and then he basically almost kills her with like the ray of light from the light spirit he had like gained control over he's such an imposing figure also he's so scary like yeah uh, you know the the just the silhouette of him and the the helmet and everything but i think like until that point until that scene like it's unclear if that even is a helmet like that might just be like what he looks like and what what the people of of uh the twilight realm look like um but that's the first moment he like removes the kind of mouthpiece and he smiles and you see all the like sharp fangs and like his tongue and stuff it's so scary it just like every time you learn more about Zant, it makes him more unsettling yeah there's a whole sequence basically after that where minna is close to death and you are still cursed to be wolf link and you just have to carry her to princess zelda through like i love near automata but there's a sequence of that game you know what it is if you played it yeah that i think is trying to do what this scene does flawlessly yes like you are essentially powerless carrying this person who's kind of only been mean to you like she's helped you but only for what she wants out of it she's using you like really like clearly using you i mean the the, you know the first thing that she has you do is get a sword and shield not realizing like once she gets them like she can't even pick them up because she's yeah and she's been cursed to turn into an imp Uh, she can't even hold them she's like i guess you have to hold these for me but like i'm gonna use these later so the sequence is your wolf link carrying minna while minda's lament plays
and it's like I mean it can be however long it takes it it <laughs> you might laugh at this it reminds me of Death Stranding where like the music kicks in I was gonna say Death in those moments too. Yeah. yeah I mean it, it is in that moment a strand game where you're reliant on bridges that already exist and carrying someone just to help them yeah and you eventually reach the top of the castle and hand her over to Princess Zelda who without saying why like recognizes who Minda is and without hesitating just gives up her life to heal Minda yeah and from that point on Minda's like your trusted companion and really the thing I forgot like I've always loved Minda and I've always thought of her as the best Zelda sidekick but she is the protagonist like very definitively like it is her story and this moment of two characters offering all they have without asking anything in return yeah is both like it's the triforce combined it's power it's courage and wisdom and I think seeing that change in her character from that point on and fighting for you know a more just cause but also recognizing like what the enemy is fighting for you know and and i think it's telling that in that cutscene where they explain the history of these mages that trapped god you don't see them as cloaked figures you see them as clones of link yeah and of Ilya. and to me my read on it at least is the game saying these people are you yeah. like what separates you from these people that made this choice is just the fact that they were tempted by that power Mm -hmm. and gave into it. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's sort of the beginning of the empathy of the game. One of my favorite moments is the, the Coblin boss who shows up throughout the whole game, Mm -hmm. like, like the head orc in Lord of the Rings. You always see exactly in your final battle with him. He speaks for the first time. (laughs) And when you beat him, he gives you the key and just says like enough. And then something along the lines of like, I fight, for the stronger side that's all i've ever known yeah and he rides off and like what a cool way to give a character who didn't need any humanizing yes <laughs> like this is maybe the most like bad guy fodder character giving him like a brief moment of humanity uh and also like explaining his worldview in a sentence mm-hmm. like the game starts doing that in the second half like constantly in different ways and that's where I think it really elevated like to one of my favorites, all the games. Like the first half is fun and I love the magnet boots. You know, we'll talk more about the dungeons later. Like, there's <laughs> yeah. some really fun dungeons in the first half, but the second half I think is when it becomes Twilight Princess. Yes, I, that was exactly. The, yes, I was going to say the same thing. Uh, I, I yeah. just I feel so strongly that the first half of the game exists as set up, but also making good on everything that people who clamored for a follow up to Ocarina of Time wanted. Yeah. And like, that's what you get for the first half of the game is like you're doing dungeon, 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 getting MacGuffins. You have like a fun, weird sidekick uh, who like kind of hates you and is like kind of fun. Uh, And then the payoff is that second half where they're like, actually, we have like much more ambitious plans for what this game is tackling and going after. And you didn't realize it. But this has all been us like laying out all these dominoes so we can start to push them over. Uh, And it it pays off beautifully, as you were just saying, like in yeah. moments like the Bacoblin boss with the with Midna, I think realizing I mean, we could go way deeper into Midna, obviously, but like Midna going from a like straight up personal vendetta revenge quest to understanding what sacrifice means and why you would even consider sacrifice and then giving up everything she has and all the control and even her revenge quest sacrificing that idea for the betterment of 
the twilight like the people who live in the twilight realm like that is that arc is just like ridiculous and yeah. even zant i mean like the zant like that was that is i think as you just said also like one of the biggest turnarounds for me with this game because similarly like as you i think started saying but maybe didn't finish is like zant has become a meme just like everyone yeah. thinks zant is funny because he is i mean he, <laughs> he's a goofy dude but when you start the game, it doesn't feel that way. Like there's that really imposing shot of him walking into Hyrule Castle pretty early on with the two Twilight Beasts who you later learn are actually the Twilight who have been cursed to turn into these beasts and fight for him, which is horrifying. But every time you see Zant for the first half of this game, like he is a scary dude and he's unknowable. And that's one of the things about him that is wild. What you learn later, and I think the most incredible bit of storytelling in this game, and this is kind of why I've always bounced off the like the Ganondorf you know uh jump scare of it all is that Zant is unknowable because he doesn't know himself at all and he doesn't have an identity he is just hungry for power and that's literally it Midna says that to his face right before she kills him by accident but like the last fight with with Zant like when you do that boss fight, it is so crystal clear why this guy could never be a leader and why he can't be the main villain of this game, because his identity in combat is just parroting things you have already yes. beaten. He yes. just takes you through all the different bosses. And I remember the first time I played it where I wasn't, I mean, again, his freshman year of high school, uh, like was not thinking this critically about video games at all. But playing it now, it's like patently obvious that this is not just a way to, you know, kind of like reuse some stuff you've done before and also like remind you of all the different tools you have in your arsenal. I do think that is a piece of it mechanically, but on the larger narrative character arc scale, it is proving that Zant does not know how to actually be a villain. And I think it's like, just like as a tactician, the idea of being like, I'm going to throw all of these different boss mechanics at you after you've already killed all of them is like the worst decision anyone could possibly make for themselves <laughs> because <laughs> you have really proven that you can do this. So when all of that facade drops and it is just you and Zant, man, if you have like two of the extra combat abilities from talking to the hero of time, you are just going to rip him to shreds. Like he just flail. All he does is flail at you. The one move that he has that might be a little bit scary is when he does his like spin move and just kind of like yeah. sends the swords out. Just hold the shield up, baby. And you're good. Like you don't, <laughs> you don't have to worry about Zant at all. And I think that's actually the most impressive thing about that fight is like, they are telling you who he is through the combat mechanics in his boss fight, less than just the cutscenes, which is, I think the give and take that we were talking about earlier about this idea of this game being more cinematic, being more story heavy, telling a lot more than showing is that they do still know when to show. And in this boss fight specifically, you learn everything there is to know about Zant in that he is a deeply, deeply unsettling person to himself because he does not have the power within himself or the ambition or the wherewithal or the knowledge or the identity to actually rise up and become the thing that he says he is. And that terrifies him up until literally the last moment that he's alive. Um, yeah. Which is, I think, exhilarating. I think it, I think I think he is such an interesting villain and like maybe the most interesting villain that isn't Ganondorf in all of these games. Um, <laughs> I, I, I he's fascinating. Well, speaking of Ganondorf, I think like what also separates him from, say, the chosen three here is his relationship with Ganondorf. Where like, yeah, this Twilight Princess Link, his relationship with the other Link, the hero of time. Yeah. Is a little bit abstract. On one hand, his relationship is literally just you are 
of this lineage. You are a descendant of this, but he's also cursed. So I think Mm -hmm. it's never said out loud, but I always got this impression that this Link doesn't believe in himself. That's just sort of the the vibe I get from like the Oran Village stuff. And, and, you know, I don't get a lot of confidence from him just because he's thrust into these very powerless situations. Yeah. And then he eventually meets the spirit of the hero of time who's personified as this Stalfos, this like skeleton warrior. So cool. They have confirmed in like the Hyrule Encyclopedia that that is the link from Majora and Ocarina, hence yeah. the connective tissue. Um, but even if you don't specifically read it as that link, it's clear that this is a link from the past. Yes. You know, a link to the past. <gasps> and what's fun is like that link is like so <laughs> immediately disappointed with this Twilight Princess link and is like, you dishonor the green tunic you wear or whatever. Yeah, wait, I, I have to I have to find that. Uh, yeah, I have to yeah. find that quote. Um, yeah. Oh my God. Yes, he has this quote that rocks, which is a sword wields no strength unless the hand that holds it has courage. Yes. And that's, I think, the thesis of the game, too, because anytime a character has power for the sake of power, it corrupts them. Even when Minna accidentally kills Zant, she's like horrified. She's like, that was a fraction of my ancestor's magic. And I just made the antagonist of the game pop like a balloon <laughs> with, a, yes. with a thought. Yeah. Um, but I think the relationship with this hero of time, this, this spirit is one of like a pupil and a teacher, you know, he's harsh on him, but he's trying to instruct him and to like essentially help him find his own path. I think Zelda and Minna is kind of similar, although it's more of a sacrifice. Like Zelda recognizes the role Minna has to play and like lets her do it. I think in, in both cases, the Link and Zelda of the past are letting the new one take stage. Whereas Ganondorf, banished to the Twilight Realm, sees Zant, this guy like, you know, crying and yelling full of anger. And he's like, you'll be my vessel. What you want, I want. And that's and Zant sees him as a god. And there's no human connection there's no understanding and there's also crucially no letting him take the stage it's just ganondorf and right. it's just it's just power for the sake of power which i think yeah i wasn't prepared for zant to be such a brilliant character yeah <laughs> it was very surprising it is definitely and i i think i think it's like hey if you haven't played this game in a long time not to add something to your backlog but like give it another shot because this stuff yeah. is like deep and rich and very interesting and i i don't think i want to skip all the way to the end but i think like we'll talk about it eventually but the next snap thing that happens oh my god yeah and we can just talk about it now i mean yeah i guess why not we're already in spoilers when when ganondorf dies and i think we could talk more about like that boss fight in general but like when ganondorf dies dies like the actual like finale of the game there is a brief moment when the last phase is done the master sword is just lodged directly into his sternum through an open wound he already has from literally the goddesses. Uh, (laughs) And there's a brief moment where he seems like he might come back again. And the implication, which I've never picked up on, because I've always been curious how this was possible or why this was in the game or whatever. But the implication for me this time around is that Zant and Ganondorf are intertwined in a pretty major way and they are like um they're like soul bound to yes. each other and i think there there's this moment where you think ganondorf's gonna come back and you see zant for a second he shows up on screen and i was like oh my god he's gonna resurrect ganondorf but instead what he does is he snaps ganondorf's and his own neck simultaneously Like Zant in that last moment, I think learned something. I don't think he's redeemed at all, but I think he learned something and he snaps his own neck to kill Ganondorf. 
which is unreal. It's like an unreal horrifying moment. And it leaves, you know, one of the coolest, maybe the coolest death ever in a video game. Ganondorf is left standing up with the Master Sword through him dead, does not fall over. And you just see Zelda and the camera zooms out way, way, way far, which I think it's just an amazing shot because they're just silhouette. Yeah, it's just silhouetted. But you can see Zelda and Link looking so disturbed just via silhouette of what's happening in front of them. It's like so scary to them. I, that that's the shot that has stayed with me. That 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 was the thing I remember from this game was that Ganondorf dies standing up. Yeah, and there's that shot of the three of them looking at each other, and it it's a shot that wordlessly kind of unites them all. Like yeah, they're all. I mean, the game is it references balance a lot. You can't have light without dark, all that kind of stuff. But I also think it, it's implying that like Ganondorf will never go away. Yes, he dies standing up. Yes, like he is still there even if he's temporarily dead. Right. I guess the implication then is like, I think what's so scary about him in this game is like he is chosen by the goddesses and all the sages are like, why on earth is this guy a chosen one? Like that fear feels so real, but also unknowable in like in just our own lives. Like we see individuals given immense power that like don't deserve it and shouldn't have it. Yeah. And it's this feeling of like, was like, like why this, like of all people to give this power to, it reminds me so What's much. The exact of, word. Oh, they, they use the, the phrase, div, it's a divine prank. Yeah. Uh, when, when uh, you, you get yeah. a flashback of the sages trying to, to essentially execute him and you know, they, they lodge their sword of light through his chest creating that wound and as he dies chained to this big block the triforce lights up on his hand and and the the uh flashback sequence describes it as a divine prank of the goddesses uh which is so scary it goes back to what our best friend the hero of time said where a sword yields no strength unless the hand that holds it has courage in that power without the rest of the triforce is meaningless i mean ganondorf is the one villain who is not really like humanized or redeemed at all and kind of represents just like unhinged uncontrolled power for the sake of it i mean there's that shot of him where like everything's destroyed and he's basically ruling over dirt and he just says like welcome to my palace Mm -hmm. and like if ganon wins he just sits on an empty throne by himself yeah and there's kind of a tragedy to that as well but that's just like that's what power without anything else leads to is just destruction yeah not to uh not to plug marvel comics given my job (laughs) um but if you want a really interesting run of comics that you could read it's just like a couple issues of a comic that really tackles almost the exact same idea thematically and like really sees it through there's a great run called thanos wins that's about an alternate history of the marvel comics universe where thanos like accomplishes his goal and it is that literally it is him sitting on a throne at the end of the universe with nobody to rule over and nothing to do and that's what ganondorf wants yeah just him i think we should talk now that we're kind of talking about the ending the ganondorf boss fight is i i have a feeling and this is just a hunch it's based on no information i have a feeling they did all this first Mm. And they're like, how can we make the most compelling game leading up to this moment? Because the Ganondorf boss fight in this game is, I think, without being hyperbolic, one of the best final bosses in games ever. Like, it's just, you fight him in some, like, so you fight him first, he possesses Zelda. Right. And you you have this sort of, like, Phantom Ganon-esque fight. Yes, you have, it's like straight up the Ocarina of Time thing. Yeah. Yeah. Then he becomes a giant boar, and you fight him as Wolf Link. Right. 
Then straight out of Lord of the Rings, he uh, shows up on horseback. You fight him on horseback with Zelda. And then you fight him one on one, like Sephiroth versus Cloud, just sword fighting. And it's just really cool. Like, I think there's there's not a lot of, of intellectual things to say about it, but I just think it's really sealing the deal on this being the end of some thread of stories within yeah, Zelda. Because totally. we're fighting Ganondorf in all the forms he can take, which is like, we're fighting him as someone we love corrupted. Mm-hmm. We're fighting him as a beast, how he appears in like the older games. And then we're fighting him, you know, like on horseback in motion and then one-on-one just us. And it it's just so well done and he's such a great villain and honestly so cool in this game. I hate to say it after everything we've said. It feels like sacrilegious, but this is one of the coolest Ganondorfs like in Zelda history, I think. Yeah. One of the things I think is fascinating about this game is like this version of Ganondorf and this version of Link and this version of Zelda became like the de facto versions of those three characters. Yeah. In every other piece of Nintendo marketing and media for like years and years and years, even after the release of skyward sword and like some of the other stuff pre breath of the wild even honestly after breath of the wild for a little bit like right now you go to the nintendo store literally right now and the headshot of link they have in the window in new york city is twilight princess link still yeah i mean they feel like stand-ins for zelda as we knew it pre breath of the wild yeah and i think similar to what you and i have talked about when it comes to games being remade and i know this you know isn't a remake but like things like mass effect legendary edition or i think final fantasy 7 to final fantasy 7 remake is like the the biggest most obvious one we talked a lot about this idea of the game you had in your head as a kid while you're playing it versus what it looks like now in this remake and i feel like this version of link and ganondorf and zelda and honestly the the depiction of hyrule in this game in its more colorful less twilighty moments are really making good on a lot of the i think visual ideas that a lot of kids had and you know i didn't play it at the time but a lot of kids had while playing ocarina of time it's like this is the game you had in your head while playing ocarina of time yeah, that was like one of the missions of the game i think it was something along the lines of ayanuma because originally this game was in development as wind waker 2 and the plan was like do wind waker again yeah but wind waker didn't sell quite as well in north america partially because of that like uh you know every every preteen kid playing zelda wanted it to be cool yeah. and edgy so i knew apparently pleaded with miyamoto I'm, I'm maybe paraphrasing here a bit but from what i've read like he basically asked miyamoto like can we change the art direction to something a little bit darker yeah and i believe miyamoto said something along the lines of like do what you couldn't do with ocarina basically yes. Yeah. Like now that technology has in the hardware is better, like mm-hmm. paraphrasing. One of the things about Miyamoto that I have found interesting in terms of all of the research we've done for so many of the bonus episodes and just doing the show for a long time is like he frequently begrudgingly says yes to a lot of these yes. things. <laughs> yeah. And th- this is one of those cases where he was like, OK, you can bail on a Wind Waker 2 idea, um, which they ended up doing anyway on the DS. But right. Uh, and like four swords and stuff. But on the condition that this is like the biggest best Zelda game ever and like clearly connects to Ocarina in some way and recaptures that and becomes as you said earlier the Ocarina of Time for a lot of new fans as well which 
I think it succeeded on in a lot of fronts. It's, it is also interesting looking at the development history. So much of the stuff in this game was planned for Wind Waker and didn't make it in, which I find fascinating. Some of the dungeons in this game specifically, Wind Waker was supposed to be like about a third longer than it is currently. Yeah, that, um, that hurts my soul because yes. the re- and the reason there's that infamous Tingle internship at the end was to kind of make up for those lost dungeons. Yeah. Uh, which is why. But that's interesting too because I think while those two games are so different next execution like we said earlier they have a lot of similar themes yeah. you know about legacy and about what the future should and could be i can't speak to that fully yet because i haven't played the game <laughs> but i'm excited to circle back to it there are a lot of moments that are visually like direct homages to ocarina which cool. is cool yeah but that's all i'll say for now i'm excited i'm excited to play that game Man, what else to talk about? I feel like there's so much more to talk about before we get into questions. I'm not against. Yeah, I mean, if you have anything, any other moments that like really stood out to you or any aspect of this game that you love before we move over to questions, because the questions do cover a lot of stuff in the game. So I'm sure it will come up again. Yeah. But while we're here. Yeah. I, I'm curious how you felt about the open endedness of a lot of this game. So I, I think I think one of the things about this game that is notable and commented upon constantly. And as we talked about in the first section is like. This is, you know, in the lineage of very linear Zelda games, like maybe the last time they like really nailed it before they moved on to Breath of the Wild. But I think one of the things that they really just like knocked out of the park with this game. And one of the things that I remember investing just tons and tons and tons of time into as a kid, the first time I played this game, not as much this time because we were playing it over a short period of time. But I think what they do with Hyrule as a space, especially in the back half of the game specifically, when like all of yeah, the you can warp everywhere. You can yeah. warp everywhere. The the twilight sections are gone. You can switch back and forth between Wolf and and uh and Helium form like whenever you want, et cetera, et cetera. The world does feel like kind of an open world and feels like um making good on something that you and I talked about a lot in the Ocarina of Time bonus, which was this idea of anytime you're going through Hyrule Field that's representative of like days of travel. And that's why Hyrule Field feels so empty in that game. You know, it's obviously for like technical reasons because you can't fit that much stuff on a Nintendo 64 cartridge, but also because they wanted to like keep the kind of legacy legend adjacent spirit alive in the actual traversal of that world. And I think this game in particular is saying we don't need to do that anymore. There are no technical limitations, even though there still obviously were, but there are no technical limitations. We can make Hyrule feel like a big open explorable space with a lot of stuff to do. And I think in that same vein, you have so many things like the fishing stuff and all of the mini games everywhere and like bug Agatha and the bugs. Yeah. Um, like all of these things start to pop up here and there that like, if you wanted to and were a completionist about it could add a like, another 30 to 40 hours onto this game and i'm curious if you had time to and if you didn't that's fine but if you had time to engage with any of that stuff on this playthrough and like how you feel about that in general as like an ocarina of time person yeah i mean i i engaged with it heavily the first time i played because i i think like everyone was like hungering for what would eventually become open world games yeah and i mentioned how when i played ocarina of time growing up i would often just like get to the adult link part and then just like explore and like exist in the place. I liked being there. Yeah. Majora's Mask kind of follows that intention up with this idea of like there being a living schedule for the three days. And that really appealed to me as well. So I think you'll find this when you play Wind Waker. In my opinion, Wind Waker is the closest Zelda got to Breath of the Wild before Breath of the Wild. Interesting. That game is so open. Yeah. Initially, when you're sailing, you have to just sail in the direction the wind 
happens to be blowing. But once you get the titular wind waker, you can change the direction of the wind and sail anywhere. Yeah. So like, even though the tingle side quest is a nightmare and it's mandatory, <laughs> that did encourage me to explore the whole world. And I did everything. I just loved being there. and I loved finding things. And similar to Twilight Princess, like I think the first time I played, I, I did a lot of the fishing, a lot of the side quests. I just liked exploring and, and being present in that world. This playthrough, I was a little bit more on the clock. We had to reschedule a few times, so I, I kind of stuck to the main quest more. But I kept thinking about, I'm like, what is the word? Not to make everything a genre, but what is the word for this type of open world? And the game I kept thinking of, weirdly, was God of War 2018, mm. where that game is also a very linear, very cinematic experience <laughs> that technically has this open world with a bunch of side quests you can do that are all optional but it's not an open world in the way like red dead 2 is or skyrim is yeah like so it's like this kind of interesting and i think at this point in time very appealing midpoint between like a total open sandbox and a very linear you know scripted game like it kind of finds that sweet spot in a way that i think has sort of been lost to time yeah i don't think we got a question about this in particular, but I was kind of expecting one. But I, th I think going back to a game like this in this style after playing Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom is fascinating because as, as we mentioned earlier, like this is a thing that a lot of people are asking for now is like people are now starting to get tired of the open world thing. And there are also just a bunch of people who just didn't get into Breath of the Wild at all because like, hey, open world games aren't my thing in the first place. And now this genre or sorry, now this franchise is like left me behind because it's moving into this space that is not what I'm here for, which, you know, is Fair is part of the risk of switching your whole franchise identity in a major way like that. And it's true that that just won't be for everybody. Um, I do think that obviously from just like a purely business perspective, not even talking creatively, like that obviously leaves a pretty wide gap open for a new market that they could serve if they wanted to like give another team another Zelda, you know, and like make it more linear and kind of pull back from the from that stuff. I think you could very easily have like a team making top down Zeldas, a team making the open world like mainline quote unquote Zeldas and another team making almost like throwbacky 3D Zeldas in this vein. Yeah. If you wanted to like serve all three of those markets, you have the money Nintendo. But going back and playing Twilight Princess I was asking myself a lot in this playthrough, like, what do I prefer personally? What do I prefer between the two of these? And I, I think, I, I mean, I, I know this is a cop out and this is going to be annoying to listeners maybe, but like, I, I just didn't land on an answer because I think they both have strengths and weaknesses. I think a more authored experience is useful when you are trying to hit theme so heavily. And there are instances in which specifically with Twilight Princess and we've, talk to like friends about this. I know off the show we've had this conversation, but like there are versions of Twilight Princess where you can get certain items and see certain sequences. You mean Tears of the Kingdom? Oh yeah, yeah, sorry. Tears of the Kingdom. Yeah, yeah. Um there are, there are instances in which you can get certain items and see certain cutscenes in like actually the wrong order that will then lessen the blow of certain other moments and that's just like a byproduct of it being an open world experience and trying to tell a more linear narrative in a world literally in which people can go wherever they want and find things in any order. And I think that truly is where the appeal of something like Twilight Princess lies for me is like, if you have a really intentional story that you want to tell, and now that this franchise to me at least has gotten more okay with the idea of like introducing voice acting and like having cutscenes with like a lot more literal weight instead of just kind of like floaty, ambiguous weight, 
I would be interested to see them flex those chops in a more linear game like this. So I don't I don't think that they should like go back forever to this style of game, obviously, like all genre and franchises and everything should like grow and evolve and change over time. And that's what I would prefer always over everything else. But I do think that the work here isn't done to me. Um, I think I think in terms of like the storytelling of Ocarina Majora Twilight Princess, definitely. But I think in terms of this style of gameplay and this style of Zelda game, like I don't think they've tapped the market and tapped the creative set. I mean, I, I think the best ever example you could point at, and this will like forever be the touchstone is Super Mario Brothers Wonder is like you have a new young team from within Nintendo, young by Nintendo standards, a new young team within Nintendo taking over what should be the most rote, boring, obvious thing in the world <laughs> and making one of the best games in the franchise that still feels new, fresh, interesting in ways that are completely unexpected just by imbuing new blood. And by new blood, I mean like people who grew up playing that stuff and were inspired by it and started probably, I would imagine, working at Nintendo so they could get their hands on and make something like that. And I would have to assume that there are people within Nintendo who feel the same way about Zelda and would relish the opportunity to like take the lead and go and make something like Twilight Princess or Skyward Sword or Wind Waker again. Yeah, I agree. I was thinking while you were talking, like, what do I prefer? And like you, I think it's case by case. I think like it really depends on what the game is going for. If you ask me, what would I prefer the next Zelda be another open world or a game like Twilight Princess? I would say the latter. I do mm. think, and they have said, and I don't know what this means exactly, but I I remember hearing that Tears of the Kingdom is the end of that Zelda. Yes. You know, that story of those characters. Whether or not that means the end of open world Zelda, we don't know yet, right. but I wouldn't be surprised if the series changes again. I don't think we're just going to get like that open world over and over again. I really think that was maybe an isolated scenario where like the demand for a sequel was just too great to ignore. Yeah. You know, yeah. kind of like Ocarina, right? Where it's like, you have this, I mean, Ocarina in some ways has like four sequels if you're loose with the definition, right. but I agree. I think playing this game again reminded me of the strengths of this weird lost third style of 3D Zelda. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel also like on, on the topic of Tears of the Kingdom, which you know, we'll talk about way more in depth eventually. But I remember finishing Breath of the Wild and thinking like, you know, the same thing that everybody else thought was like the divine beasts don't really scratch the itch of dungeons fully. Yeah. Neither do the shrines. Tears of the Kingdom introduces dungeons again. And I think they're good, but a little wrote in terms of the way you make your way through them. Like they all end in spectacular boss fights, which I think is great. Um, but you technically are doing the same thing in all of those dungeons, which I think is a little frustrating. And I feel like there is still a chance and an opportunity, even if this rendition of Zelda is done between Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom, I still think there is an opportunity to make an open world Zelda game that feels more like a Twilight Princess or a Wind Waker or even an Ocarina and has like more distinct dungeons. I think it could still be linear with an open world connecting that linearity, if that makes sense. And that would yeah. that would scratch so many itches and please so many people. You know, I, I just think that there is a there is a really obvious next step here. And I was expecting Tears of the Kingdom to take that next step. And it all, it was kind of like a half measure. It felt to me like Pokemon introducing the, the wild area in Sword and Shield being like, this is almost what people are asking for. Yeah, I can see that. I think it sort of proved that the overall structure of those games doesn't really allow for the dungeons people want. So I think like if you do, add, you can't just add dungeons to Tears of the Kingdom without having the dungeons 
inherently operate differently because you're entering them with like four powers you have always right rather than being designed around maybe one or two you can break physics right yeah i'm wondering if there's maybe room for sort of a 3d version of link between worlds not literally but like that's that's really what i'm talking about when yeah. i when i'm saying that yeah was a top-down zelda where very also a sequel to Link to the Past, technically, or, or sort of a spiritual sequel of some kind, where it was essentially a top-down Zelda, but you could do the dungeons in any order. And the the central structure of like item acquirement was that you could rent items if you had the money for it. And I wonder if there's a way to make a Twilight Princess that's more open, but still follows like the overall skeleton of of this 3D era. Yeah. Easier said than done, obviously. Right, of course. But I think I think there I think you're right. I think there is room to grow here. Just like we played super mario wonder and it's like how on earth is there still room to grow with 2d side scrollers yes in 2024 but there is i can't believe i'm invoking this person of all people but uh <laughs> steve jobs <laughs> uh <laughs> is you know there are a lot of complicated things about this guy i do think one of the things that he got right and said frequently in interviews about like why apple was successful specifically after like the ipod and the iphone in that era when people were like how do you keep coming up with this stuff or a lot a lot of his responses would be something to the effect of like people don't know what they want until you give it to them if you answer everybody's prayers always you're going to make something that they realize they didn't want in the first place um yeah there are there are a bunch of weird examples I, th- I think there's stuff like, you know, the iPhone would have had a physical keyboard and stuff, which some people are like, eh, maybe that'd be good. But anyway, I think like Wind Waker is an obvious example of that when it comes to Zelda, where a lot of people loudly thought they didn't want that and then grew to love it in time. I feel like Twilight Princess is born out of people saying what they want and then was rejected a couple of years later. And, you know, now people are coming around on it again. But there is still a contingent of people out there who are like, this is one of the lesser ones. Again, rehash of Ocarina, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there are a lot of people who after Twilight Princess were like, we want something light and fun like Ocarina. And then you got Skyward Sword and that went like in a completely weird and different direction. Also, people asking very loudly for like the literalization of the history and connective tissue between all these games, which then birthed that book, which is like nonsense and shouldn't exist. I feel I actually feel strongly (laughs) that book shouldn't exist. I think it's much more fun to like theorize this stuff and literally let Nintendo do whatever the fuck they want instead of ever thinking about the existence of that book. All that having been said, it's one of those cases where when I hear people saying I would rather they go back to this style of Zelda is why I think there is this like interesting middle ground between what we've gotten with Wild and Kingdom and this style of game where it's like there is a cross section between those two that hasn't been served yet. And I think if you were able to make that game, it might convince a lot of the people who think that they don't like an open world Zelda game to get on board. I also think yeah. the the hopeful HD ports of Wind Waker and Twilight Princess will definitely fuel that fire. Oh, yeah. Because these two games, I think, are a good blueprint for what that would look like. Mm-hmm. If you're hearing us talk about this and like, what do you what do you mean halfway point? Like Wind Waker, especially when you play that game, you're going to be shocked at how much Breath of the Wild is in that game. Yeah. Beatles in there for the first the first Beatle ever spoils you can pick up enemy weapons and use them yeah Come on. it's all there that's that for ox did you uh i don't did you pick up on the fact that tingle is in twilight princess where he has a different name but he's definitely tingle what's his name uh, that's terrifying zant I, I think it's yeah it's zant it's midna <laughs> um oh my god what is it? it's perlo he's uh the, perlo. he's the guy who runs the star game in castletown oh yeah yeah he he's kind of tingly but he's he's dressed like tingle He's really cocky in a way that Tingle is not. Yeah. I can't believe he's made Tingle look better 
but uh yeah there it are. does feel a little bit like they were like what if tingle was hot which is not a question you should answer <laughs> on that note why don't we pivot to listener questions <laughs> that sounds good see you later bye-bye We're going to address many listener questions. I just want to note you, you started this episode saying like this game has had sort of a reevaluation of, of sorts. Peaks and valleys. No further evidence than how many questions we got for this game and how many of them were just people saying, is this the most underrated Zelda of all time? <laughs> that was like one of the most common ones. I also, before we even get into questions. Yeah. One more beat of the story I wanted to talk about. Mm. I totally forgot maybe never even witnessed Minda breaking the mirror and it destroyed me oh the post credits yeah i don't think i stuck around i think i just i just you know thought it ended with her being like aren't i beautiful and then going yeah. yes and then ending <laughs> uh but that uh, that was yeah, that like, whole credit sequence i mean some of this there's like some little storytelling that happens in yeah. the background like of the credits itself but then it stops and there's like an actual scene that plays out here yeah which is like unreal so good yeah essentially like the latter half of the game the MacGuffin is getting pieces of the uh twilight mirror this mirror that lets you go from one realm from like hyrule to the twilight realm and it's mentioned early on by minda that like she's like zant isn't the most powerful twilight because he can only break into pieces the true ruler could shatter it like to nothingness yes so there's a scene of link zelda and minda talking as Minna is preparing to say goodbye, going through the mirror back to the Twilight Realm. And there's a moment where, like, it's implied that she's about to say I love you to Link, but says see you later instead, and then shatters the mirror. Yes, very Han Solo. Minna's the Han Solo of Zelda lore. Notably, she she shatters the mirror by... She has, she has one single tear that's streaming down her face, and she takes the tear magically... And uses that to shatter the mirror, which I think is like so crushing because yeah. I the thing for me is like one of one of the big I don't think we got this question either, but I think one of the biggest frustration points with me narratively in this game is Zelda's sacrifice and how that is just like undone for some reason. Yeah, it, it, it lacks the weight if she like actually was gone. Yeah, I might bring up that exact point in another episode. <laughs> um, anyway. Zelda sacrifices herself to save Midna. Beautiful moment. Link obviously has just been like bending over backwards to help Midna any way he possibly can, despite how mean she's being to him. And I think all of this just like really teaches her the meaning of like sympathy, empathy, sacrifice, what it means to be a true ruler of people and like what it means to be a leader. And like something you and I and our friend Tamar talked about a lot on our Mass Effect episode is this yeah. idea of like who gets to be the captain, quote unquote, who gets to be shepherd? Why are you shepherd? Who who gets to be the leader? And it's, you know, the most common refrain in like all of fiction, but the people who want power the least are the ones who deserve it the most. Um, and I think Midna, that's why she's the protagonist of this game. It is literally her journey towards understanding that for herself. And she has this one final tear as she goes to say goodbye. And it's not because she's leaving and going back to the twilight realm but it's because she has decided unilaterally to make the sacrifice and say i don't want you coming here 
to like visit me. I'm not going to come visit back. The idea this is all unsaid to be clear, but my understanding and reading of this scene is like the reason that she shatters the mirror and prevents anyone from traveling back and forth and like goes into the twilight realm is the idea of being able to come back to the world of light and to see link and Zelda again and like all hang out like buds really is like a distraction from what she should be doing. Like she, her life's purpose now is the betterment of the twilight, like the people who live in the twilight realm and giving up the ability for that, like quote unquote vice or crutch, I think is a huge moment for her. And I think is an acknowledgement that she has like learned her lesson and is going to be a great ruler. Yeah. I I mean, I think at the very least she's choosing something else over what she wants. Yes. Because what makes it so sad is like Zelda and Link are like thinking this is just goodbye and we can maybe like do a twilight hop every now and then if you want to hang out, you know, because like Zelda even says like, I understand now why this mirror exists and the goddesses like wanted us to meet. Yeah. Which like maybe is true, but like, especially given the events of the game in my head, Minda was like, I don't want anyone else to have to go through this again. Mm -hmm. I'm going to shatter the mirror and prevent that. Yes. Yeah. There's definitely like a, there's an inherent danger to the idea of having this gap or having this gateway exist in the first place. Right. So it's like, it's for the betterment of both peoples in general, but yeah. But it it was like such a Casablanca gut punch that I (laughs) could not believe I had never seen it before. If I had seen that scene at age 21 or 17, I would be a different person. (laughs) I think that would just like have reframed my idea of romance forever. Mm. Uh, Because it's so beautiful and tragic. Yeah, it's incredible. What a a great moment. And just like in the background of that, you just kind of it's like the most classic like fantasy credits thing where you just get to catch up with everybody. You get to see the kids returning to Ordo village and stuff um which is just really lovely i love them i also i really liked colin especially who's the yeah. like blonde one yeah he like there's a scene where like a i think it is like the bokoblin who talks later on is like charging through the village and is about to like hit one of the kids and it's really it reminds me of um wally <laughs> it reminds me of wally i from pokemon uh ruby oh, sapphire and I thought you meant like wally pixar i thought you were just fucking with me. oh no um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I, this, I love that Colin just like picks up trash uh, and falls in love with a, a, an Apple iPod with eyes. But no, Wally from Pokemon, kind of similar energy. Yes, similar energy. But yeah, one of the kids is like standing in the middle of the street and is so terrified of what's happening. Oh, and they're just like, yeah, yeah, they're just like paralyzed. It reminds me of I was going to say like Miyazaki is especially good at like capturing the behavior of people in those weird moments where like mm. they don't maybe have like I, we talked about in uh, Boy in the Heron on our Patreon, like the fact that uh, Mahito is like putting on a new outfit while the city burns. Yes. Right. Or while his right. town burns. And like I think in a weaker script, the kid would be like running away screaming. But it's it's so much more dramatic that they're just standing there like, you know, like just awestruck at the danger of what's happening. Yeah. And then Colin jumps in and like pushes them out of the way and, and takes the blow. And it's like this kid never becomes a chosen one. He never gets more powerful, but he has this moment of heroic sacrifice that I think weirdly does inspire Link, actually. Yes. Like that kid dives in the way of someone else before Link learns that lesson himself. Yeah. Cause that that's that's the beginning of I think what leads to the moment that everybody sees as like the iconic moment of this game, which is the the jousting battle on yeah the um oh my god what bridge is that El- elden bridge the elden bridge yeah and that that battle with with the the boss bacoblin to try and save colin ends with that 
just unbelievable shot of, you know, kind of looking upwards from beneath the bridge and you see Link on Epona as a like slow motion Epona, you know, kind of raises two of her hooves in the air and Link holds the sword to the air and it's like it's absolutely incredible that moment and like how cathartic it feels and you're like that is fucking link dude that is the hero of this video game he has become the guy all that's that's what makes like the two hours plus in ordon all the fucking monkeys in the in the (laughs) first temple like all that stuff it makes it all totally agree it makes it all worth it literally for that shot and i think this this goes back to you absolutely just like bullseye directly in the center of my cortex saying that the fiction I love the most is the fiction that's like metatextual and interested in its own legacy. I think that that shot serves double duty also as a reflection of a shot we frequently see of Ganondorf in Ocarina of Time. He he has a similar, almost exact same pose that he strikes in Ocarina of Time. And I think once or twice also in Twilight Princess. And considering this game, you know, we haven't said this on the episode yet, but Twilight as an idea is the halfway point between day and night, right? And And this... it's just this inflection point that I think in the game's reading of the idea of Twilight, like anything is possible at Twilight. You know, it it could turn to night. It could somehow turn back to day. It's possible. Any, anything can happen here. These are, these are the moments in which you need to like make decisions. Uh, This, this halfway point also between light and dark, like just as a narrative storytelling idea, when you're talking about characters, like who is this person going to become? This game is so interested in the idea of like power corrupting people your responsibilities and how you rise up or fall uh when when confronted with those responsibilities that moment when link heroically strikes the exact same pose as ganondorf really shows how thin the line is between those two how thin the line between courage and power can be um and we see that like in the i know we have a question about this later but like the i think endlessly interpreted weird like dream sequence that happens in this game which you alluded to this idea of like all of these potential things that could corrupt link and make him a lesser version of the hero of time i I love that shot so much and it all starts with colin that's like colin is the reason that that happens uh (laughs) him pushing rules that shitty kid out of the way uh (laughs) real (laughs) you, you see link Literally, I love this too about this game because this this is one of the best things they took from Wind Waker and just like copy paste it into this game is Link's expressiveness in this game. Oh yeah, is different too, but I think on the same level as Link's expressiveness in Wind Waker. I think in Wind Waker, I it's totally done, like, agree. So much for like comedic reasons, but there are moments, at least in what I've played of Wind Waker, which is not much to be clear, but like there are moments in in Wind Waker where you can see him like being upset. But this is like really the first moment that you see Link angry, like ready for revenge. Like he kind of loses himself for a moment. He kind of becomes the beast. He kind of becomes his wolf form as a human, like very briefly when he sees this happen and the Bacoblin leaves with Colin, which again leads to a fiery jousting match on a bridge that fucking whips. I also think that the theme of, of power and like what true bravery is. There are a lot of moments in this game where they make you like run head on with an enemy, whether it's jousting or sumo or like herding goats. True power is found in like letting it like come to you and holding your ground rather than making the first move. Yeah. Um, which is really 
thematically consistent. Right before we started recording, uh, you and I were talking about the fact that usually when we're playing games for bonus episodes, we're just like texting each other incessantly about everything that's happening. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Almost to the point where we're like having a bonus episode level discussion just like in our Discord DMs uh, or like via SMS, which is like not the move. And in this game, we were like very cagey, I think, with one another. But that was the one thing you were like, I can't wait to bring up all the sumo influence and all the wrestling <laughs> yeah. and all, all the weird moments where you just like need to stand your ground and like fight somebody uh yeah yeah it's great it's amazing there's a lot of sumo i I love it i think it's cool to see like again i think marrying the themes of the game with like even just weird one-off mini games having that somehow relate to the themes of the game is really miraculous yeah the way the way it pops up also in the um ganon fight when he turns into like ganon beast oh yeah and and Midna's like big like spectral hand is the thing that like grabs him by the head and throws him fucking rocks. Midna's like ponytail hand is so cool. Yeah, it rocks. It's so it's so good. This game rocks. Anyway, let's get into questions. Yeah. So this I'm starting off with the most cursed one. This is from our good friend Dominic Nero, co-host of a wonderful movie podcast you should listen to called Eye of the Duck. It's rewired my brain for all media. I'm constantly looking for Eye of the Duck scenes. Listen to it. It's a great time. Actually, I should be on it relatively soon as well. We've both been on it in the past. So yeah. Plug in that show. This is from Dom, who is a very close friend of mine and is also an agent of chaos and has also introduced himself on this show as Zant. So <laughs> fitting. We start with him. Yeah, I think uh, the most recent episode we had him on was called Usurper King Dom. <laughs> yeah. For that exact reason. <laughs> this is from Dom. Serious question. All longtime listeners know Twilight Princess is truly the one Siskel and Ebert topic for Brendan and Steven, meaning you both seem to deeply disagree on it. It's BB's favorite Zelda, while SH seems ambivalent. Now after replaying, is the beef squashed? Have you become one? Are BB and SH better friends or have their disagreements over the game driven their professional and personal relationship into chaos? Signed D. P.S. Hope you guys talk about Zant. I'm curious. I have an answer, but I want to hear from you first. I feel like the ball's more in your court. I mean, I, I haven't I haven't really changed my opinion on this game. I, I think I've grown to love it even more reflecting on it. There's there's a lot to dig into in this game. Yeah. So I'm cur- I'm curious how you feel about it. I will add a note here that Dom, I think, really wants us to fight for some reason. Of I course, he wants us to be Cisco. Like, actually, like he wants to hear the Cisco and Ebert review of Spawn for right. this bonus episode. <laughs> Where Ebert compares it to the artwork of Bosch and Cisco goes, you're comparing this to Bosch? Good luck. That's what he wants. I'm not going to give him what he wants. The thing is, I never disliked this game, but I, I, I think if you listen to the Ocarina bonus, for example, I think I in passing refer to it as like maybe the time when Nintendo started taking less big swings with the franchise. Because mm. I think Majora's Mask is inherently cosmically like it feels like from another realm of existence. Like I'm like yeah. humans made this. It's, it feels actually cursed as a game. It feels like a very weird and interesting way to follow up Ocarina of Time. Wind Waker, I think also is very different in every way. Yes. Especially when that came out, like it, it's a notably different entry and potential future for the franchise. Whereas Twilight Princess, I think, especially at the time was seen as like, let's go back to Ocarina and do that again. So mm-hmm. That's kind of what I was referring to and doing that and having that discussion on that episode. I've definitely switched. I mean, as I've alluded to, like my complaints about Ganondorf showing up last minute and like the connection to Ocarina, all that not only like worked better for me, but it like really highlighted the experience. Yeah. You know, I, I think especially like you mentioned 
Link striking the pose as Ganondorf as like a signal of his power. I think also Minna having her like worldview switch to positive after the childhood part of the game. Whereas in Ocarina, you get the three stones, the world goes to hell and it's a very low moment in the journey. Mm. And Twilight Princess, it's the high point. It's the point where Link and Minna like join forces for good. Yeah. After he saves her and Zelda makes her sacrifice. But yeah, I, I, I don't think there was any beef to be clear, but I do think I wouldn't say it's my favorite Zelda still. Like, I don't know if I can go that far, but it's definitely in like the best of, I think it's like in the, the ones I would like really champion and put in the upper pantheon of Zelda games. Yeah. I, I was actually fully expecting to walk away from this episode thinking that it wasn't going to be my favorite anymore. I thought, I thought that it was going to bump below breath of the wild, which is still number two for me. But, uh, I, I mean, I really just came out of this experience being like, man, I love this game even more than I thought I did, which is pretty wild. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't really even see it as a disagreement between the two of us. I just think like, if you want to know who Stephen Hilger is or who Brendan Bigley is, you just look at twilight princess and look at wind waker and you have your answer. <laughs> in a lot of ways <laughs> exactly i like that I, I like that a lot as an answer yeah. let's move on from from zant's question here sure oh this is just a note i put everyone sort of cautiously brought up uku oh yeah and i figured if we hadn't already mentioned them we can talk about them here yeah which we there, were, there weren't even didn't. questions they were just like what what's with uku how do you feel about uku is that how to pronounce it even or is it like i don't know aku yeah i think pick your it's poison o-o-c-c-o-o right? yeah yeah, uku, uk, uk, ku. We're burying the lead. They're they're chickens with human heads. Yes. Um, and let's also be real. Visible nipples. Visible nipples. They have a city in the sky <laughs> with miraculous technology. <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. But the the way the way uku originally appears is in the forest temple in a pot, which you can miss. I think. I think you could just yeah, like, and and they're in every dungeon. Yes, like you can find them in every dungeon. They're essentially hiding in a pot, and when you find them, a little theme plays. Maybe Adrian can put it here. And they're like, "Oh, thank you for saving me." Like, if you want to warp out of this dungeon, just let me know. I've never used them, so I don't know how they actually get you out. Yes. Here's Do you the, have the answer? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. They uh, they just warp. Okay, so they warp <laughs> you right back to the entrance. So the outside entrance of the mm. dungeon. So you can just leave. And I, I believe, if I recall correctly, when they introduced the the child, Uku. Who's just ahead. Who's just right? ahead. The big, the big deal with having both of them is that it allows you to warp back directly to the room you were in, in That's that dungeon. Right. So instead, so... When you say, oh, I want to warp back, what you would normally warp back to like the beginning of that dungeon again. Um, but that will allow you to warp into a specific room, which is, in my opinion, and I don't even think this is an opinion, just the best version of fast travel and ever introduced in a Zelda game when it comes to making your way through dungeons. The unfortunate flip side of this, because it's Twilight Princess and there has to be a light and dark side to everything, you will never, ever need to use this. 
It is like <laughs> every dungeon is so breezy. The only instance in which you might think to use it is like there's going to be a bunch of chests with rupees that you can't pick up because your wallet's already full. And if you want, you could leave the dungeon, go spend all that money, and then come back and collect those chests if you want to. But you really don't need to do that because there's so many rupees everywhere. You're never going to be worried about that. So at the end of the day, you have what is, by all accounts, the weirdest, best version of fast travel in a Zelda game that goes completely unused probably by most players and instead just becomes like a strange, weird weird nightmare you have every once in a while i have nothing but respect for making what is essentially a mascot character into the most horrific thing possible yeah i love how polite they are and if i were in real life if i was link and i was in one of those dungeons and i met this thing and it said do you want to get out of here sword immediately i'd be like oh okay I'd be like, I would rather leave here with you than just know you're here and continue on (laughs) with my journey, you know? So I love, I love the, I also love the bait and switch of like, when you go to that temple where you get the dual hook shot and it's in the sky, uh, which is a great dungeon, by the way. That's one of the ones that was supposed to be in Wind Waker, by the way, which is interesting. Damn it. That would have been so cool. Yeah. Anyway. That would also mean we'd have like a cartoony Wind Waker version of Uku. (laughs) That might not be true. <laughs> I do love the Rito, which were uh, they they had their debut in Wind Waker, the bird people. Uh, I remember before Breath of the Wild, the theory was that they were the Zora, but evolved, um, uh. which, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> but they all have <laughs> we're in part three, baby. Uh, they all have like judge wigs and yep. they all like are more humanoid, but they have big beaks. Yeah, I love them. Yeah, um, that's as far as I've made it in Wind Waker. Actually, just. If you don't mind me derailing a little bit, one, one of the things that I've seen a lot of theories about and a lot of questions about with this game is the absence of the Gerudo specifically mm, uh, yeah. and where they might be. And there are some like I, I think in the realm of all the theories that exist about this game and all these games, like this is one of the least outlandish ones because in the Hyrule Historia compendium, whatever timeline, official timeline, um, the next game after this is four swords adventures i believe it's like a direct quote-unquote direct follow-up to this game in the timeline and the grudo are there they're like in the game so it's it's possible that like somewhere deeper out in the desert than we even went the gerudo are just hanging out we just don't even meet them in this game yeah the other more horrifying theory that i've seen which might be true is you know ganondorf tried to steal the throne of hyrule and that's why they put him to death and he definitely needed an army and he's the king of the gerudo and that's maybe what the Arbiter's Grounds are for. It's just a big prison for the Gerudo. That's also the, the Arbiter's Ground is interesting because it's sort of a fusion in terms of like the vibe of it and the structure of it and even the like, you know, the four ghosts within it. Yeah. It's sort of like the forest spirit and shadow temple all in one. Yeah, exactly. And it's a flip because usually, usually the Gerudo are sort of like a stand in for like sexuality and independence in these games. Like the spirit temple feels like about life in a very like bodily way in, in Ocarina at least. And like yeah. the character you meet there is like, you know, suggestive in the way she interacts with, with Link. So there is a connection there. B I wonder, I have no idea. That, that's an interesting <laughs> thing to think about. <laughs> yeah. I, it didn't even occur to me until I, I had finished the game again for this episode and was just like crawling through forums and found somebody who just asked benignly, like, where are the Gerudo in this game? And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. The answer could be really fucking dark. That, that's eerie if it's just the prison that has been abandoned for for decades yeah. or centuries. Yeah, exactly. 
So just wrap a bow around Uku. I love them. Uh, I th- I think they're fantastic. Uh, I love that they've never come back. It feels it just it just also the bait and switch of like that temple in the sky that I mentioned. They say like one of the pieces of the mirror is in the heavens, and you expect it to be this like angelic place, and it's like Uku City. Yeah, uh, which is so funny. Like, and in case you wanted more of these things, this is where they live. Yeah, it feels like at their introduction at at uh uku's first introduction like when when she first shows up it's like what a fucking nightmare that they put in this game and i can't believe that (laughs) like look if you don't know anything about game development or anything about like i don't know just making works creatively it's worth saying that in situations like this there are so many people that need to approve a thing like uku a drawing of uku made its way across so many desks at Nintendo and everyone is like, yeah, sounds good. Put it in. Yeah, everyone's got good taste. The, f- yeah. the fact that all of that happened <laughs> and for most of the game is like totally unremarked upon. It's just like, here's a weird thing you yeah, find it's, in it's every played dungeon. It's totally straight and like Link is happy to meet Uku. Yes. And, and meanwhile, likely teenage you is like, what do I make of this? I've right. never seen like... Our brains can only compare things to what we already know, and Uku is new data. Right. So, like, I need to just go outside and maybe look at the sun until I go blind. Uku is the is the video game visual equivalent of taking the limitless pill. Like, <laughs> it just activates pieces of your brain you didn't realize were turned off, and scientifically have been proven to not be turned off, but somehow you turn new ones on. Point being, all of those people signed off on Uku, it feels like a strange fluke that you're even meeting her in any of these dungeons at all. And then you make it to the city in the sky, and it turns out it's, again, just another payoff, because there's a whole city of them. There's a whole city of Uku. I want I want someone to really explain to me where Uku fall on the Zelda timeline. You know, like what led to them... I want I want lore for Uku. I mean, there are so many questions that could go answered about. I mean, like, are they the the Zonai? Like, <laughs> are they? The, okay, moving on to the next question immediately. This one's from NSR. Twilight Princess to me feels like Nintendo's exploration of adulthood. Not edgy and vulgar, but actually a story of growing up. Mm. Starting in your quiet town feels so much like being a child. And as the game progresses, you're dealing with heavier and heavier ideas like grief loneliness and responsibility your body even literally changes into a wolf and by the end you are able to control your changes and grow up into a full adult quote unquote it just feels that the devs and nintendo wanted to make a zelda game for the fans who are growing up with the franchise on the precipice of maturity do you feel similarly what other life related themes relate to you while playing twilight princess i mean i think you're totally right and i think it's pretty evident just by the game's state and also like looking a little bit into the development that like they were appealing towards a teenage audience right. in many ways. They were they're trying to age up along with the Ocarina of Time audience. Absolutely. I think all of those themes, weirdly enough, though, were in Ocarina and Majora already, especially Majora. Like we talked about how yeah. the Skull Kid transformations and like this power from Majora and like his body not being ready for it and like that tension feels like a nightmare version of just like growing up you know like not recognizing like new feelings and thoughts and you know physical changes so i think like that interest in you know growing up and and telling a story about the transition from childhood to adulthood is very present in in the two other i mean i haven't played link to the past in a while so i don't know if it's there too but it's at least in ocarina and majora 
So I definitely think it's present there. I also think too, like the thing that related to me the most while playing, and I think especially so while playing as a teenager, was that aspect of being Wolf Link and being present in a room with other people, but they can't see or hear you. Mm, yeah. Like you can you can hear their thoughts and you can recognize them. Like to explain a bit, when you're Wolf Link, like in the Twilight Realm, in the early part of the game, no one knows you're there because you're in another realm, but you can sense and see everyone else. And there's this like kind of fuzzy barrier between you and other people. And for me, like as a teenager, you know, as many young people do, like I was also going through my own reckoning of my mental health. And it's the first time in your life you're likely feeling or at least equipped with the vocabulary to describe thoughts and feelings you're getting for the first time. And I remember in my senior year specifically was when I really started to struggle with this idea that I convinced myself that people only liked me for superficial reasons or Mm -hmm. like only liked me for a fleeting amount of time. They thought I was funny or they liked things I could do, but that was it. Like there was no deeper level. I was of course wrong. I had like good friends, but I think when you feel that way, especially when you're a teenager, it's hard to recognize your feelings from reality. And I remember my acting teacher who I was very close with. I'm, I'm cursed slash blessed with a very emotive face and a very large head. So everyone knows how I'm feeling at all times. And I feel like I can laugh because I'm the same way. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I wanted you to laugh, but I remember being. In but if you have a small class, head and you're laughing, stop it right now. Stop it. You're laughing at depressed teen Stephen. Uh, so I was in this class and my teacher saw me like in a mood and she said something along the lines of like, Stephen, you can feel alone in a room full of your best friends. And that that has kind of stuck with me for a long time, not Damn. as like a critique, but just as like a recognition of like, wake up and like, look at who you're with. Like, these are your friends. Like, they want you to be here, mm. you know, and the wolf link parts of the game really touched that nerve for me, even as a 33 year old who's like through therapy and life experience mostly move past that insecurity but it always stays with you like any any kind of demon you have like it's about kind of recognizing its place in reality not distinguishing it entirely Hmm. so there are things that can happen to me that inflame that fear but hearing that quote and seeing like (laughs) wolf link which is funny to say now after sharing that memory but like link be actually in a room full of his best friends with no recognition on either party. Yeah. That really fucked me up. And that feels very much like something I imagine a lot of teenagers go through and people in general, but especially teenagers. Yeah. I feel like it's, it's unfortunately a meme at this point, but like (laughs) the inside you are two wolves thing. Like if you really like, (laughs) can't believe going to stupid podcast over intellectualize this shit. Uh, If you boil down the inside you are two wolves meme, really what it is a reflection of is an understanding, I think, like amongst all people that there is a version of us that exists outwardly and there's an idea of ourselves that we keep to ourselves, right? And sometimes the version of ourselves that we keep inside is a much crueler interpretation of who we really are than who we reflect and who we appear to be to others, which I know definitely for me at the time I was playing this game was very much the case. It may surprise you, dear listener, to learn that I am not an extrovert, despite 
hosting a podcast and doing many other things in public. But for at least the four years of high school that I was in, I sure did convince myself I was an extrovert for a really long time uh, and like projected myself as one. And I think was like welcomed with open arms by everyone in my life as one. And it turns out that I was just like putting on a front and being somebody else for, I think, like performative reasons for others. And it took a really long time to like wrap my head around why I was doing that and and who I really was and like figuring out, I think, like the core being that I I think it more aligns with who I really am. And I think it gets back to exactly what you were just talking about for the same reasons, right? Like there there is this version of Link that he turns into that is literally a wolf that is inside him that is like, I think not the kindest way of viewing himself and in a lot of ways is like more vicious and possibly like a problematic direction for him to go in when it's first introduced. Like the idea that that inside you is this like beast, this like demonic beast that people are afraid of is obviously in the text really important as we talk about this idea of like power possibly corrupting you like this is how link sees himself internally over the course of the game though he becomes a master of that beast and i think that's really powerful i think that's like a kind of unspoken powerful aspect of this game to go head to head against ganon as a beast while you have like fully mastered this idea of you being a wolf switching back and forth at will is like a strangely beautiful thing to wordlessly introduce into the video game in its last hours. Oh yeah. I mean, that's kind of what persona is all about. Not to immediately yeah. make this a persona episode, but like, especially persona four, like every dungeon is based around a character's like, you know, the version of themselves they, they don't want to see. Yeah. And it's only by owning that and accepting that as part of themselves, they can wield their persona. But I think, with this game, with the Twilight Realm, like there's a line near the end before Mena shatters the mirror is like, remember that there are two worlds. Like, I think that part of what creates the problems of this game is that like Hyrule remains ignorant of the Twilight Realm and of the pain and suffering that's there. And at this point in time, it's like the people who live in the, the, the Twilight, the, the residents of the Twilight Realm are like so far removed from the group of mages that that tried to conquer God. Yeah. But it's like, at what point do you let them off? You know, right. at what point do you continue this punishment? But I think in a more perhaps psychological read of it is like there is just like this unrecognized history and and part of the world that like only by accepting can things reach true balance yeah i think it it is i i love the way this game ends i love you know how midna shatters the mirror and goes back and rules over the people the twilight realm hypothetically really well etc cetera, etc cetera. i think that's great that's a great arc i do think one of the interesting narrative elements of this game that I don't think goes explored as well as it could have is the idea that like when Zant presents the idea of I want to take the light and the dark and merge them and create a world of shadows like as I mentioned before like that's not real that's not how that would work I do wonder if there was a world in which they could have proven him wrong and been like actually if you merge these two things it just creates like a more powerful community more than anything else like all it really does is empower the people on both sides of that to like rise up against wrong and evil doing i think i think that's that's an interesting approach that could have been taken and i think kind of does it kind of rears its head a little bit in breath of the wild as we've talked about a lot yeah but that's that's i think one of like the weird lingering aspects of the game that i'm like i i agree with you you hear all of this stuff about the people of the twilight realm who've been banished there because of like the sins of people literally like 
thousands of years older than them. And they're living like in squalor in a dark, horrible place. It's rough. And that kind of doesn't go resolved. Yeah. Like it creates Zance to then see Ganondorf as a savior. Yeah. Even though like that's obviously not the case. Right. Exactly. Um, Moving on to the next question. This is two from Rufus. One, how does the Hyrule of Twilight Princess rank for you amongst the Hyrules in the Zelda series? Great question. I like it a lot. I don't know if I have a definitive favorite. I think it's hard to compete with with the open world games just because like that's what they're about. Mm-hmm. Like the setting is the game. So navigating it and like seeing different terrain and discovering different things, like it's hard to top that. But I do think this feels like a fully fleshed out, like you said, a fully fleshed out version of the Ocarina Hyrule. So like this is sort of like the de facto Hyrule for me, whether or not it's my favorite, but I do think this feels like what the other games were alluding to the whole time. Yeah. I think one one of the things about this game, again, talking about how the back half is like when it becomes Twilight Princess, when you are able to really kind of explore the entirety of Hyrule, I think it becomes really apparent that the the version of it that we talk about the version of Twilight Princess's Hyrule that we talk about when we talk about this game usually involves so much of like, oh, yeah, it's like Dower. This is the Dark Zelda. This is the Gritty Zelda. But I think in the back half of the game, they really prove that this art style and this version of Hyrule contains multitudes. Like there's so much at play and there's so many different vibes you can explore and live within. Um, I mean, like Hyrule Field, amazing place. Uh, there are so many things to find there and so much stuff to do which is amazing uh you know i think this version of like hyrule castle town is i think maybe second to none it's just like unbelievable it feels like it has a bit of clock town influence as well like i i felt that Mm -hmm. way in navigating the different districts of it yeah it's just it's it's amazing how expansive it is and how much stuff there is to find there um and and all of the different things you can do you know you have places like snow peak you have places like the desert i mean all the different forests that exist like this game and this version of Hyrule really does contain like everything you would want out of a Zelda world I think how does it compare to the other ones I don't know but I like this one a lot that's kind of where I'm at too yeah (laughs) uh second question from Rufus what about this version of Zelda the character stands out for you given she occupies quite an unusual removed role for a Zelda game yeah I think I think I go back to what I said before about the the nature of her sacrifice is a little bit of a bummer um just that it's like undone uh but I think the fact that she made the sacrifice still counts right like she doesn't have a lot of screen time in this game but what screen time she does have really does work and is like exhilarating like when you first meet her you sneak into Hyrule Castle is like so cool like when she has the the hood on and everything it's like so such a great reveal and such a cool moment but I think at the end of the day like the game is called Twilight Princess you know the game is about you know it is the legend of Zelda Twilight Princess I guess but like it is about Midna more than it is about Zelda and I think Zelda as kind of this reflection of who Midna can become as a ruler is really gratifying and interesting and like a cool way of using that character if you're not going to give her more agency I think, uh, which is, I think, always a bummer with some of these earlier Zelda games. This is one of the least bad versions of that. I agree that the sacrifice is a little bit lessened by her just being okay at the end. But I also kind of saw it as Midna giving back where it was like Zelda gives this sacrifice. And then when Midna is in a good enough place to both like give back and also be her own person, Mm. it allows for both of them to exist. So I think conceptually maybe works better, but that also kind of leads to Midna breaking the mirror at the end where she sees Link and Zelda. She's like, eh, you two are fine. Shatter. (laughs) You know, like (laughs) like the light realm is fine. The twilight realm needs me kind of thing. 
But I think I think Zelda is cool. I mean, again, the the Nomura Organization Thirteen hood is so cool. Mm-hmm. I don't know how she's personified off the top of my head in the older two D games, if at all. I know in Ocarina, you obviously have the childhood Zelda, who's like essentially puts the whole plan in motion of the game that right. backfires terribly. And then of course you have Sheik, which is, I think, I think Sheik is a very cool twist still. Yeah. It is weird though, how it almost feels like Zelda can never really, it's almost like she's doomed by fate to never be like more present in the game. It's always through like disguises or alter egos that she's present, which you can maybe look deeper into that on a, on a certain <laughs> level. Right. Uh, but I, I do, I do like the scene she has in this game. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of look. if you're going to really try to go for the Ocarina of Time thing, like bring Sheik back in this one, make her Sheik again. Sheik almost feels kind of, I mean, cause the Sheikah, they're not like Twilight, but they're sort of like another culture that like seems more comfortable with darkness and that Impa is the sage of of the Shadow Temple and all yeah, that. Yeah, so there is one confirmed Sheikah tribe member in this game. Um, I think it's I think it's the um, uh, well, I know who it is. The fortune teller. I forget her name though. Oh yeah, but she has the the eye on her forehead. That's right. I love the fortune teller because you can ask her like, "Tell me my fortunes in love or finance," and she'll just tell you where heart pieces, where heart pieces are. are yeah. I'd be like, "Go there and do something." Is yeah. her is her real, like you're not a very good psychic, are you? Yeah, it's great. Um, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Bring Sheik back. That, that's my that's my big thing. Bring Sheik back because I think for a lot of people, this game is like just you know big like buy icons everywhere. You know, like <laughs> that's the vibe yeah. of this game. I think to a lot of people. Oh yeah, and man, bring Sheik back. <laughs> Absolutely. Snooze button UK. If you were trapped in the Twilight Realm, what animal would you be stuck as? Oh boy. Do you have an answer for this? I'm trying to think of like what the worst version of or what like a what is a cautionary tale animal for my worst instincts? <laughs> um <laughs> I think I would maybe be hmm. It wouldn't be fun, but it would be a sloth. You would not want to play as twilight brendan as a sloth because it'd be a very slow arduous video game it is interesting that the animal that i i see is like the worst possible version of myself is also my favorite animal i love sloths for me i was gonna say a tortoise um mm. which i also love similar energy yeah yeah kind of like retreating or maybe like uh abandoning things in fear of getting hurt mm. yeah i thought that was gonna be more of a fun question and end up being kind of therapeutic so thank you <laughs> snooze button uk (laughs) moving on because we got a few more uh brady this might be a long one if the characters in this game were pokemon gym leaders what would their type specialization slash gym gimmick be a la unbounds weed gym what kind of gym leader do you think agatha would be i'll give you one guess (laughs) yeah some of them are pretty obvious if agatha used rock type that was her gimmick just to surprise you uh, it would be so funny. I love, sorry, I just love dipping into the weird, like the weirdest, worst theories I've seen on the internet. Uh, and one of the ones that I have seen sprinkled around about Agatha specifically, um, there's two versions of this. Number one is that she's the last living Kokiri and they have her in that house with that big tree as like kind of an homage to the Deku tree. It's a fun idea. The other one is that she is secretly Zelda's younger sister and is royalty. <laughs> and that's how she has all that money. <laughs> so it's like a Grey Gardens type thing, yes, exactly. like with Agatha. Yeah, just straight up Grey Gardens. Yeah, that's hilarious. Anyway, Agatha bug type. I mean, I think uh, 
I'm trying to think of like fun gimmicks. I think the types are fairly obvious. Like Midna would be dark type. Yeah. Maybe like dark fairy type. Yeah. Any any fun ideas here? What do you think Link would be? I think Link is, depending on who you're playing as, either the player character or the rival at the end. But I think he would use a full team. I think this Link especially that. needs a full ensemble at his at his back. Right. He's the only other person who understands you shouldn't just have one type of Pokemon in your pocket. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. Uh, moving on. Here we go. NBZ asks, dungeons are such a core part of classic Zelda. And I personally think Twilight Princess is some of the best in the entire series. Would love to hear your rankings of the dungeons in the game. Uh, I thought we could just go through them and give them like an S to F ranking. Oh, yeah. Tier list, baby. Uh, so I believe these are all of them. Step in if, if I'm missing any, Brendan. But uh, starting off easy, Forest Temple. A solid C from me. I don't love the Forest Temple, to be honest. Mm, we're going up to S, right? S is, S is our top? Yeah. For me, C is like it's it paid the bills. Like it did its job. I don't think there's anything here that stands out. I do like the monkeys swinging on them is fun. I I love the fact that the first mini boss in Twilight Princess, the weak point is a giant ass. Yeah. Uh, the the evil monkey who then ends up helping you at the final boss. That's really good. Dude, empathy for villains. Yeah. Love that. Uh, yeah, I think you're right, though. I think C because I, I, I as much as I want to give it a B, I'm really just between B and C, which I, I think says a lot. But um, some of the stuff. I think specifically like the the weird worms under the uh, tiles that you need to like use oh, the boomerang yeah. to like that stuff is more annoying than like fun as a puzzle solving element. It just like it just like impedes exploration instead of aiding it, which I think is like one of the cardinal sins of any thing you can add to a Zelda dungeon. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's like it's totally fun. I think also like starting with the forest temple. You know, you're competing against Deku Tree, which I think is like one of the best Zelda dungeons and like yeah. the best like tutorial on 3D Zelda. So it's totally serviceable, but I can't give it higher than a C. Yeah. Next up, Goron Mines. I give this an A. I love Goron Mines. Yeah. You get iron boots and then the surprise that this whole dungeon is built around magnetism. So you put on the iron boots and you're like, you get pulled up to a different part of the wall. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, it's done really. It's gravity rush, baby. I'm here for it. So Goron Mines for me gets an A. I am almost of a mind to give this an S. I think this is like close to a perfect dungeon. It's like one of those ones where at least for me, there's really not a question about what to do, why you should be doing it or how to make it through. But you do feel like a genius multiple times anyway. Actually, I think I'm going to bump it down to an A. The big thing is the shield of it all because your shield can yeah. light on fire. <laughs> also, I, I think this dungeon for me might be a little bit too handholdsy. I think it's like mm. one of the dungeons where like whenever you enter a room, the camera like zooms over to like where you need to go. And like, I usually appreciate that. Yeah. Especially when we're doing like bonus prep, like <laughs> anything that can get me through a little faster is usually helpful. But right. I think like this would be S if it maybe had like a more memorable boss fight. Uh, actually, I do. I love that boss fight. The boss fight is cool. And also it is, they came out around the same time. So I don't know if this is the case, but this boss and a few others feel so much like they're right out of shadow of the Colossus. Mm. Like, yeah. And, Cause a lot of them feel like little puzzles in themselves where you have to figure out like, like this one, the obviously the sky one and the one where you're underwater and you have to hook shot to the yeah. lake monster that that is very shadow of the Colossus mm. in a good way. Yeah. The Gora Mines really good dungeon. I don't know if it like ranks amongst like the peak for me, but it's it's close if not there already. Yeah, I think I'm with you on that. All right. Lake bed temple. 
I like this one a lot. I, I, I started this episode saying it's the only water dodger that doesn't make me think of being sick. So like that's something there. The thing is, though, playing Ocarina of Time for that episode, I totally flipped on the water temple, yeah, at least in the, three, in the yeah. 3DS version. I think the water temple in Ocarina is actually great, even though it's like a little bit dry. This to <laughs> me is a more discernible version of the water temple. I like the central room. I like the stairways. I did feel like a genius when I pieced it all together, mm-hmm. but it is a little bit boring. And I don't love that the boss fight, the second phase is great, but like how many tentacles with an eyeball are we going to do here mm. for the hookshot water dungeon? So I'm going to give it a B. I think it's like overall better that it's not, but I think like it loses points for being like a little bit, a little bit accidentally boring. And also uh, the boss feels a little bit uninspired in the first chunk. Yeah. I, uh, my first instinct was also B actually, uh, which yeah. is I think where I'm going to keep it. Cool. Arbiter's Grounds. Easy S. Uh, yeah. This, wow. You and like, I are like really aligned on this. <laughs> easy, th- this dungeon being as good as it is, is why I gave Goron Mines an A. Because I'm like, yeah. I love Goron Mines, but Arbiter's Grounds is like representative of peak Twilight Princess. What if Beyblade, but stand on it? <laughs> Yeah, so you got the <laughs> you got the spinner, which is like a steampunk surfboard that's just a gear yeah. that you can like lodge into walls and ride or put into like central like gears to like operate the things around you. Really cool boss fight and also really eerie atmospheric storytelling. Everything about it is great. I love yeah. Arbiter's Grounds. And the area leading up to it is also really fun because you're no longer tasked with getting the bugs. So when you arrive at the desert, it's like really exciting and really cool. And it feels daunting. It feels Mm. alien to the rest of Hyrule. And uh, this, this, the look of it too, it almost looks like a Coliseum. Yeah. um, And it's architecture. It's so cool. I love Arbiter's Grounds. Just like, oh man, what a cool fucking boss fight. (laughs) Just (laughs) unbelievable. Just an amazing cinematic, cool thing. It's like. I maybe the the thing you could knock it for is like it's really hard to fuck up that boss fight like maybe it's not challenging at all and it just it just is cinema but like that's fun I think it works for that one that's also the game the game is going for that I don't think it's trying to be like a super challenging experience snow peak ruins also easy s for me starts with Uh, s gets an s isn't yeah yeah you described it as like a pixar short film where like you find this dungeon by meeting a very friendly but intense yeti who invites you to his house and the whole premise is that his wife who's also a yeti touched the mirror shard and is like sick because of it yeah and not only that but now their home is full of monsters so <laughs> I, I kind of alluded to this in the first part of the episode but she keeps like trying to remember where the key to their room is where the mirror shard is and she leads you in the direction of other treasure chests that contain ingredients for the soup her husband is making for her, which it feels like a fable. This feels more like a fable than Twilight Princess does, where it's like the Yeti said the keys in there. No, it wasn't. They said it's a pumpkin. <laughs> you know, like you can hear <laughs> it read that way. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and then you finally get to the bedchamber, and the wife is there, and she uh, like wants to give you the mirror, but then gets possessed. Kind of like a. It's kind of the, that shot where Bilbo doesn't want to give away the ring. Yeah, um, right. Another Lord of the Rings influence, like. She becomes demonic and uh, she's the boss fight. And then afterwards, like the other Yeti runs in and like hugs her and they have this really sweet exchange. I actually want to find the words they say, if you don't mind. Yeah, I'll just say while you're looking that up, I, I, I love the way the camera works during that fight as well. 
where you have the reflection of her when she's hovering over the ice yes and the camera pans up so you can like see the reflection you can see where you are like what a what an interesting way to to visualize that um also like dude the ball and chain like the ball and chain is i wish i had more use for it which yeah there's another question about items so i'll save my thoughts for that but i i do think my one complaint about this game is that a lot of the items feel one and done that's something that i remember feeling and that's yeah one criticism that hasn't changed yeah and yeah i i think that's totally valid it's like you really just like use it in the dungeon you use everything again for the zant fight and like if you really want to you could use that stuff to find all the heart pieces out in the world and like those are your three times you're using that stuff uh but it's really few and far between that you're using a lot of it except for the the hook shot which you're using all the time the hook shot's awesome and there actually is like early setup utility for the double hook shot so that that also worked better for me because remember the first time i was like i was like another hook shot really Essentially, like when you when you fight the boss and, and return her to her normal form, they like share comforting words to each other and embrace and a bunch of hearts shoot out, including the heart container. And Minna makes a comment along the lines of like, this is what power can do to somebody like mm. this adorable Yeti couple that like mean no harm to anybody can become these demons with like a shard of this thing's power. Yeah. It's an incredible piece of storytelling. You know, I think the item is great. The, the everything about it. I think, I think it's probably my favorite temple in this game overall. My one critique is that I do wish the marriage focused dungeon didn't give you the ball and chain as an item. (laughs) The little two on the nose in like a 1960s standup comic fashion. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. love and marriage yeah oh man i didn't even make that connection <laughs> maybe it's an f um no, it's, it's still a great dungeon yeah it's an um, s to me temple of time i'll give this one um a b i think the item is really interesting this this item feels the most one and done though it's used for a yeah. side quest but the you get a rod that possesses statues and like yeah. it feels the most gimmicky of all of them because at least the, the ball and chain you can like use as a weapon whenever you want but this is like there's only one use for it i think i agree with you on b i think i'm not going to contest that really because because i i feel the same way i think some of the puzzle solving with the dominion rod is like good not great i think the thing that bumps it up to a b though is like the ambiance and the atmosphere and just the yeah it's very in cool. the temple of time at all is like amazing yes. such a cool thing and i remember i remember even the first time I played this game, not having played Ocarina of Time, knowing nothing about it, being like just in awe of the Temple of Time. Like I, I could tell that there was something important about that place, even experiencing it for the first time in any Zelda media. Um, Absolutely. And that is still the case. I think the Dominion Rod too, even though it's a one-off, is also really cool in how it's used in this dungeon. So it's, it's a fun mechanic. But, yeah. Uh, City in the Sky. I mean, I want to give it S because I'm an Uku head, but I'm going to give it an A. I think it's really fun. I think I think the boss fight is exhilarating and the double hook shots are fun. Yeah. But I think at this point I was kind of ready for the game to like reach its finale. Mm. So maybe that's more just me preparing for a bonus. But um, I can't quite go S for this one. Yeah, I think I would I would go even lower. I think I'd go to a B for that because the, yeah. the, the thing for me is I love the double hook shot. It's just and this is a good thing. Let me let me say this up front. I think for most players. Uh, this is probably a good thing, but it's really slow. And like the the grapple points, the ones that move specifically and like take you around in between the kind of like sky archipelago, like a lot of those platforms and things that you need to grab onto are like 
just really, really slow. And you spend so much of this temple knowing exactly what to do, but waiting to do it. And I think that's where maybe you're you're like, okay, TikTok, like that's where that comes from, I think. Um, yeah, I agree. So yeah, I, I think I would go B. Yeah, I, I'm going to keep A because I feel like someone has to give Uku love and that'll be me. But uh, yeah, that, that's fair. So we'll, get, we'll give it a B plus. A B plus. Palace of Twilight. This is interesting. I mean, I think this is sort of eclipsed by the Zant showdown. Yeah. So I'm trying to like gauge that with the rest of the temple. I'll give it an A overall because I think it's a fitting like finale I mean, it's not it's a kind of the fake out finale but i think it's like we haven't even talked about the sound design of the twilight realm and how oh my like, god yeah alien and weird it is so i think all of that is here amazing this, with headphones by the way if you yeah. get the chance to play this game with headphones Yeah, I think overall, like really good. I don't know. I don't know if I'm on S for this one, but the thing the thing about this dungeon is like you enter the Twilight Realm after hearing about it the entire game, and the strange thing about it is that it looks exactly the way you imagined it. Yeah, that's true. And it's like no more exciting than that. I think is the thing. It feels a little bit underwhelming in that it completely meets your expectations perfectly. And I think coming yeah. after the city in the sky, which feels like oh my god, and coming after the temple of time, which again is like oh my god, having something that like meets expectations feels a little bit less than. But I do think it's like kind of remarkable that it looks as cool as it does and has such like an interesting, unique identity. And as you just said, like feels alien and weird, and yet has this like familiarity to it, which is kind of confusing. What did you give it? You gave it an A. I gave it. An a yeah i think i'd give it an a also i think if it wasn't for the zant showdown i would give it a b but i think the zant confrontation yeah elevates the whole thing yeah i think that bit opens like the the going into the palace opens with the cutscene where you find out about ganondorf and stuff like dying and all that uh which i think is cool as well uh so yeah just all in all like good story stuff happening around this temple hyrule castle um i think a b for me i think i i just wanted to get to the showdown mm. so i felt like very impatient like i think there's a lot of really cool moments but in terms of like the dungeon puzzle solving design of it all like i thought it was fine mm. but i think it's it's above a c because i like like the bacoblin stuff and you know everything leading up to ganon is awesome i i think this is an s for me oh really yeah i this love that I, I think this castle is like exhilarating and I, I felt it the first time I played the game and, and I was expecting that to wear off a little bit this time around. But it does feel like I mean, you're using most of the items that you've acquired also throughout this castle, which I think is great. So you're like, yeah, finally getting to use all that stuff again. And it just feels like a culmination of your entire adventure up until this point, which I know is like maybe a little bit of a reductive way of putting it, but that's what it feels like. And I think they really pull it off. I actually like it more than the Ocarina version of this, which is like the Ganon tower yeah, where there are like rooms for each item. Uh, mm. This feels more like a seamless way of doing it. Yeah. Uh, S for seamless. I think it's great. Um, <laughs> This this I, I I think this is like a, an amazing way of capping the game off. And then obviously the boss fight is ridiculous. Yeah, the boss fight's amazing. You know what? If we're counting Ganon, maybe change it to an A for me. Cool. I'll just go through them again. Forest Temple. What would we average out for that? Forest Temple was a C. Goron Mines was an A. Lakebed Temple, B. Arbiter's Grounds, S. Snow Peak Ruins, S. Temple of Time, B. City in the Sky, you gave an A. I gave a B. We landed on a B plus. 
Palace of Twilight a Hyrule Castle. You gave an A. I gave an S. I think A+. plus. Cool. So we're pretty much in unison for most of these. Yeah. I do think like holistically, I said this earlier in the episode and I'll say it again. I do think this is like just one of the best collections of dungeons in a Zelda game. And at the very least has like probably all the best boss fights. Yeah, maybe a hot take, but especially after Majora, which I think those are the weakest part of that game. This was a nice breath of fresh air. Cause I'm like, after, like I, I think Majora has some really cool dungeons. I think the moon is really creepy, obviously. Yeah. That's not really a dungeon, but you know what I mean? Like it's got cool settings, but great Bay temple was just like poisonous to experience. I did not enjoy that at all. <laughs> So this was this was nice to like it almost made me scared to like have to do more dungeons. Oh, these are actually fun. Who would have thought? Yeah. Thank you for that question, NBC. Uh moving on. Uh Biscuit Ryan asks, if you were making a Twilight Princess AMV, what song would you choose and why? It is here I reveal that Brendan and I have secretly made a mid-early 2000s emo playlist inspired by Twilight Princess that is on Spotify. So in place of this answer, I'm going to point to that playlist. Do you have one song you would choose, Brendan, if you had to? Oh, man. Um, I feel like the most angsty one off the top of my head that really sticks out is The Taste of Ink by The Used. I think a song I had already stopped listening to by the time this game came out, but uh, <laughs> does weirdly feel like it works. I feel like I have two. I mean, actually... I kind of have three answers, which I'll go through fast. One is kind of as a bit, someone in the Discord mentioned uh, an AMV of Linkin Park's Faint to Twilight Princess and our good friend Chase, a host of Video Game Potimism, made it and it's like perfect. So I think Faint by Linkin Park is is a good choice. But in our playlist, I think if it was specifically about Midna, if the AMV was all about Midna, I would say Careful by Paramore. If it was about Link and his relationship with others, uh, Walk Through Hell by Say Anything. I think the lyrics speak to both of their journeys in a, in a weird way. Yeah. I think one other one that I could throw out, which uh, if we can each pick two, not quite emo, but like is sad, uh, is... <laughs> Uh, Mr. November by The National, uh, which is a, oh, yeah. a a song about running for president uh, and how fucking horrible that must be. Uh, but also like really is a song about like trying to grapple with power and like living up to that amount of expectation. And uh, I think lyrically just works really well for Link's journey here. Somehow fittingly for this whole episode conversation, my first therapist was directly related to a member of the national. Oh, really? Uh, which feel, yeah, which I, I never really listened to because I'm like, I thought this is maybe two degrees too close to me, but I always think about him when I, when I hear them mentioned. It, it, just one member of the national? Yeah, I believe That's he was one of, one of the members' uncles. Okay, so the interesting thing about the national is that it's the lead singer and then two sets of twins, which would mean uh. process of elimination, they were related to the lead singer. <laughs> maybe yeah i just remember he, every now and then he's like do you listen to the national he's like yeah that's my nephew yeah he's doing his thing <laughs> that's really funny. uh he, he seemed very proud of him though yeah should be sorry if you don't have spotify but the list still stands you can at least look at the list and that'll be in the show notes okay moving on will our friend and composer asks which is your favorite of the zelda items specific to this game talk about why and which one you would want to bring back in the next zelda game so he mentioned here that's double claw shot, dominion rod, spinner, gale boomerang, ball and chain, etc. I think the ball and chain, I just think having like a really heavy weapon that needs to be swung first 
I, I would love that in a Souls game, mm. if not Zelda, you know? Yeah. So I think Ball and Chain would be cool. I also think the double hook shot is neat. I wonder if there's a way to maybe like visualize that more creatively rather than just having two. Like, I, I wonder what else. I mean, that would just be Spider-Man, I guess. But. Yeah, I was just thinking that too. But <laughs> I mean, that is also my answer. I think the double claw shot's like the most fun I had with one of the like specific items in this game. Uh, and I would just like to see that explored more. Moving on. Flavor asks, do the one-off gimmick items have more charm than the classic multi-purpose items in other Zelda games. Yeah, I'm, I'm of two minds about this. I think on one hand, like having stuff like the Dominion Rod and the Ball and Chain and the Double Hook Shot, like all those dungeons are very purposely designed around those singular mechanics. Um, and it allows them to stand out as experiences. But it does it does negate a sense of progression that is maybe found in Ocarina where like mm. getting the hook shot opens up possibilities as do bombs and the, you know, bow and all that. like having items that have more general utility do give a sense of like leveling up for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. So I think, I think it's kind of a trade off. I think they work for the game as much as they don't. I, I think they make the dungeons feel like these special little vignettes, but I think as a whole, it does feel like, maybe uh, we don't feel like we're progressing as much as we would in another Zelda game. Mm, yeah, I think that's really well put. I haven't even really thought about it through that lens, but I think you're totally right. I mean, I, you know, what a Beyblade, but stand on it. Like, I think that that's, <laughs> I think that that point still stands. I think we should refer to that point. Uh, just, you know, point at that on the, on, on the big, uh, the big whiteboard of life every once in a while. But yeah, I, I think I agree with you. Pokey kid Blake asks, if you had the power to will a remake into existence, would you pick a full remake for the Switch successor or a 2D make? This is just of any Zelda game? I'm, I think of this, of oh. Tom Princess. So would you rather have a full remake for the new hardware? I see, yes. Ground up, you know, possibly even open world, let's say, or a 2D remake? Ooh. I personally want a 2D make. I think that would be really fun. Yeah, I just see, want to like, see them do that at all. How do you interpret the magnet boots? In yeah. like an Oracle of Seasons. Uh, also just seeing like all the characters and stuff in kind of a 16-bit presentation seems fun. And also hearing like a chiptune version of the music. That to me feels more appealing than like... Because I, I honestly think this game has aged beautifully. I think it looks great still. Yeah. Even the GameCube version. I so think so like, too. It's one, it's one of the things that I see as like a more contentious argument online that like... Wind Waker created this art style that everyone I think universally agrees stands the test of time. Definitely. And... Twilight Princess was like, I think, graphically, artistically kind of of its time going after a very specific thing and like pushing that generation, you know, about as far as they could uh, and was the beginning of the next generation. And I, I think there there is rumbling, I think, back and forth and people on both sides of this camp that like maybe it didn't age as well. I think that this is just as clear of an artistic direction as Wind Waker. It's just in a very it's in a very different lane but I do think this is art that like, in my opinion, still really holds up very well. Like obviously some of the textures are like a little bit muddy and whatever, but I think it looks like a holistic, complete thing that I think, honestly, it's one of the strange things about the, the HD remake on the Wii U is like, it doesn't look that different from what we got on the GameCube and the Wii. And I think that's a testament to good art direction. 
Yeah, I think the character design is also like really strong and and yeah. To answer this question, I mean, I'm just like interested at all in the idea of a 2D remake. Like maybe maybe not even Twilight Princess. I just like would like to see them do that at all. Like that, what a cool concept that is. I I love. I'm growing. Maybe it's because I'm getting older, but I love the idea of DMX more and more as time yeah. goes on. That's fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I think especially after playing a big chunk of uh Dragon Quest 11's 2D mode, it's like. Yeah, start doing that more. I think it's because a remake makes you think about what works more than a remake does even. You know, mm. a remake is inherently like what didn't work. And a remake is like, focus on the core of it and, yeah. and shed away. Right. I think when it comes to like answering the remake side of this question, I don't think I would want a remake. But what I would be interested in, and I, I don't think this will happen, just given the placement of this game, like this kind of completes a trilogy, et cetera, et cetera. It'd be weird to do this. But I was really hopeful that Tears of the Kingdom was going to pull more from Twilight Princess than it did. And I just I just think you could explore more stuff with some of the storytelling roots that have been laid here. I think like the idea of the Twilight Realm is fascinating and like the people who live there and everything that's going on there. Um, you know, it's not it's not not low rule, I guess, in some <laughs> respects, uh, but it's not as literal as low rule like low rules. I love that game to death, but it is very funny that they were like, it's low rule. There's an there's another Link and another Zelda and another Ganondorf down there. And they're all purple. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the the echoes, like the counterpoints are looser in Todd Princess. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. it's like Zant Ganon, Minna Zelda, Link and, you know, the the echo of the hero of time. But yeah, still yeah, making it too literal can take away from the magic. Yeah. Uh, this is from Xtian. What do you think is the in canon in Ganon reason that they typed that? That wasn't me. Reason that Ganondorf gets distracted by the fishing rod in the final fight. I have no idea, but that rocks that that's true. <laughs> yeah. So do, do you know this? Uh, no. Do you know what this is? Oh, okay. So when you're in the one-on-one phase of the Ganon fight, if you pull out the fishing rod, it distracts Ganondorf entirely. And it's like one of the more strategic ways of going about that fight. Cause you can just throw the fishing rod out and he gets disoriented and then you can go in for a hit. That's amazing. I love So that. I guess my, I guess an easy read would be like, he's just so baffled that you're like going up against him in the final phase of this fight with a fishing rod that he's, he's like confused. I think a deeper read is like a Rosebud Citizen Kane thing where like <laughs> Ganondorf secretly loves fishing. It's like his one humanitarian pastime and showing him a glimpse of the person he could be throws him off for a second. Mm, I love that read. I, I think I think there's a version of it def- just to build on your first theory. I think there's a version of it also that's like everything to Ganondorf is so fucking serious. Like everything yeah. <laughs> has to be about like respect and power and and whatever, whatever. And to show up with with a fishing rod is like, how dare you do that right now? Like this is for the fate of the world. It's an my insult. Guy. Yeah. Yes. It's essentially a taunt, really. Yeah, exactly. Next up from Will again. If this isn't something you get to on the episode, interpret that extremely weird cutscene with evil versions of Link and Ilya after the water dungeon. The hell does it mean? Does anyone know? I, I mentioned this earlier. My read on it was like, I think it's purposeful that they're not that they're showing like characters we embody and care about as the people who like committed this cardinal sin, essentially. Um, that like they are us or potential versions of us. I remember this scene so differently though. I remember it like 
more Zelda timeline e about like what if Link was evil? You know, like what <laughs> what if he like got bad? And like that's yeah. way less interesting to me than just like we're gonna tell you a tale about an evil committed and show you in the role. Right. Uh, to me, I think that's just like. It goes hand in hand with the with the themes of empathy and of humanizing some of the villains and, and showing what power can do to otherwise normal people. Right. Yeah. It's um. It's kind. It's kind of the creation myth a little bit. Right. Also. Yeah. 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 Totally. Um. Or at least it's their version of telling the creation myth of Hyrule. At least. Uh. But. Yeah, I mean, as we've talked about a bunch, like, I think a lot of it is just a representation of, like, how easily you can lose yourself to that kind of power. There is, like, I think a notable, given, like, the target audience and demographic and stuff, there's, like, a notable kind of, like, undertone of, like, a sexual awakening in some ways going on there. Sure. Um, Which I think is on purpose presented in, like, a kind of uncomfy way because you would never think of Link, I think, in that way in this game at this point, really. Um, especially, like, in pre- in previous games, and this is the first time they could really, like, tackle that idea at all. I mean, it's a little bit in Ocarina with some of the, some of the characters. Yes, like, I yes. Think with, with, like, when you're a kid and you meet Princess Ruto, there's sort of, like, an innocent kids imagining what adult romance is like. Right. Scene. And then when you're an adult, you kind of interrogate that that fantasy. Yeah. But I think you're right. There is, like... This is like a very sexual game in a lot of ways. That's not as present in the previous entries. Yeah. And not even as much in future ones outside of like, they just made a lot of people in Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom really hot. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But there is like, I think there's, I mean, especially when Minna transforms into her, you know, more humanoid form, like there's a romance between her and Link there, I think, you know. It might be platonic, but there's like a very strong and intimate connection between the two characters. And even when she's like in her imp form, it's not like sexual inherently, but like there's a lot of scenes of them just like, you know, comfortable around each other, like her, like putting her arms on his shoulder or like, and it's in stark contrast to like in the beginning of the game where like Link is a wolf and he's just under her command. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they really do become a team as the game goes on. Yeah, absolutely. But I think there's a lot of ways you could read into that. And I think you could write up like a billion different interpretations of it, which <laughs> I think makes it uh, makes it good cutscene. It's interesting, too, to think about romance with Link in this game, because there's sort of three characters. There's Zelda, which I don't think she's positioned as romantically as she is in other games here. Yeah, I don't see that at all in this one. There's sort of like an assumption, I guess, that like they have to play these roles. But really, it's Minna and Ilya. And it's like... Ilya for for most of the game loses her memories uh and she's sort of like like there's usually a character there's like a strange archetype within Zelda games of like the normal human at the ranch who kind of goes like undersung and underloved yeah I feel like Ilya is that but like presumably like she and Link once the game is over can like resume their relationship now that Minda is gone and Mm -hmm. I struggled to like find her place in the story as much. Like, how do you read her kind of memory loss and, and regaining of that all? Yeah. I mean, the more cynical read is like, they just wrote her, wrote her off because they didn't know what to do with her. You know, and that's kind of how it feels. I mean, I think it's meaningful to get her memories back. It's a, it's a touching scene. Yeah. But when she does, she's sort of just like, cool, I'll wait here. Yeah. It's just, it's not that exciting of a way to, to, I think, uh, 
It, it reminds me honestly so much of um, Saria and and my my critiques of the way I think she's treated in that game. I feel like that's that's one of those relationships that feels like it should be a little bit bigger or more impactful than it is outside of some of the opening moments and like when she pops up a little bit towards the end. I feel like there's a, there's more to do in that middle ground that isn't really explored. And I feel very similarly about Ilya here, where it's like it's implied. I mean, to me at least, it's implied that they are like kind of in maybe the early stages of a relationship for real already yeah. in this game. Um, and as you said, like we'll probably be after the end of the game and the credits roll, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think, you know, there's there's a certain reading you could have of like Link is doing it for her, which I don't think is like totally true. I think he's like doing it for a lot of reasons. But yeah, I mean, it's worth mentioning also while we're talking about all this. It is implied also that this Link is a descendant of ocarina majora's mask link and malin exactly yeah. those two get together and then you know pass down the ranch for years and years and years which eventually becomes ordon village i always read starting on the ranch is kind of like a nod to that yeah. whether or not it's like you know even like even if they know that themselves it feels like that's sort of the the road history took yeah cool moving on yoke punk asks twilight princess takes so much from 2000s emo culture brian froud designs and ueda's visuals what artistic homages would you like to see in future games? Great question. I honestly would love to see just more stylized like art direction and characters. I think like usually uh, in, in a lot of games, there's a strive for realism that I think is cool and has its place. But I just think usually the games that age the best are like things like this and Wind Waker that have a very unique style to how they depict things. Yeah. And I think especially in like a Zelda or Nintendo game, that's usually what i want to see from them yeah i don't I don't know if i could specifically pick out like i think they should make a zelda that looks like this um but i do appreciate again this art style so much i think it's so interesting and the, and the way i think the more like high fantasy dark fantasy influences mesh with the like almost tron-esque energy that is emanating from the twilight realm is really fascinating and like meshes way better than you would expect also i just remember this from the marketing of this game they were really flexing that particle physics were starting to get good so when you're like in areas of twilight and you have all the like little kind of squares floating up out of the ground and so yeah. like all of those particles really add i think a lot to making that space feel alien but in general i mean as i mentioned earlier in the episode i think uh like just these visual designs of these characters became iconic enough that they became like the default for Nintendo for a long time in terms of like what I would assume is an internal brand style guide they have as most companies do when they have IP like this. Um, I would imagine they like redid those style guides to kind of say like, hey, Twilight Princess is it for a while at least. Absolutely. And that leads us to our last question from Bacon of War. Uh, also, just thank you all for submitting these. These were really fun to go through. Uh, we always love doing this for bonuses. Yeah. Thank you for turning up with all these questions. Uh, it's, yeah. it's I mean, it's the best part of doing these episodes, at least for us. I don't know <laughs> if it is for you, dear listener, but it's at least our favorite part. It's a nice like a uh, uh, like lazy river ride for us. <laughs> ah, yes. We can just read questions. Uh, Bacon of War. Hey, Stephen. This is addressed to me because I, I put out the ask. I imagine they're saying, hey, Brendan, too. It's not all about me. Hey, Steven. I can take a backseat to this one if you want, though. <laughs> yeah, can, can, you turn, can you turn off Skype for a few seconds? How well so do I you really know me? Answer for me also. <laughs> hey, Steven. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Love the show. Thank you. In the games that would follow Twilight Princess, 
the Zelda franchise would become increasingly focused on using mechanical ingenuity to spur a feeling of adventure. Sword control, open world building mechanics. Do you think that Twilight Princess is equally capable of summoning a feeling of adventure and discovery through its more structured focus on narrative and tone? We addressed this kind of earlier, but I thought it'd be a fun question to end on. because I think the answer is yes. I, I don't think, especially right now, where like, I think in many ways the default has become open world survival crafting game. It doesn't summon that feeling of adventure maybe as much as it did when that genre was new. Not to say that it still can't because we get games like Elden Ring and I imagine Dragon's Dogma 2 will, <laughs> will, will carry that baton in some bizarre way. Yeah. But I think like I think games like Twilight Princess and honestly looking at its influences too like Shadow of the Colossus like those are two very focused in some ways in, in at least Shadow of the Colossus case very minimalist games that are you know you mentioned that like you can describe Twilight Princess's like essence in a sentence and I feel like that speaks to its focus as well I wouldn't say it's minimalist to the same degree right but I think like having these games that are you know this lost era of 30 hour games that are like open enough but still driven by narrative I think now is the time for this baton to be passed down you know, I think now that we're no longer exhausted by this type of game, I think there might be an increased awakening for or at least an increased awareness of opportunities for growth within this style of Zelda game and game in general. I mean, I, I look at the success of something like uh, Hi-Fi Rush as like another like very mid-aughts style game that people ate up because yeah. there's like a there's a lack of that now. And I think there's a place for that still. So I think the answer is yes. And I'm really excited to see either what Zelda continues to do. I mean, I will inherently always be excited for that, but I'm also excited to see like what games come out that are inspired by this era of 3D Zelda. You know, whenever there's a lack of games like a certain era of Nintendo, there are always a new genre of indie game that will come to fill that void. And I'm curious if that will happen with this style of 3D Zelda. Yeah, uh, good answer. I agree with all of that. And I'll probably double down on that in a, in a second. I think um, in terms of, do I think Twilight Princess could summon that feeling of adventure through narrative? I think, yeah, because they, I think they focused on narrative. I think that's, that's really the thing here, right? Is like, they really, I think, set out to tell like a big kind of sprawling conclusive story in this game that is like very thematically rich and they really nailed it and by i think confronting you with all these different characters not even just like the main players but all of these like kind of smaller characters throughout all of these different spaces throughout hyrule making you travel between all of them that just that is an adventure like that that is in its essence that is an adventure um that you that you get to go on and i, th I think it i think it is wildly successful at doing that also like doubling back to what we we're talking about in terms of making good on like what hyrule field can be just you know fleshing out hyrule in general i i think for me this is like kind of the platonic ideal of this style of zelda for me this is like what i would want to be the blueprint for what you were talking about like if somebody was you know coming up playing this game is like i want to make a game like that i would kind of hope that they would point at twilight princess is like the main point of inspiration not that i wouldn't want like a wind waker version or i mean even like a majora's mask version or something but i just think twilight princess to me is shoulder to shoulder with ocarina of time in a lot of ways in that like ocarina of time as we have talked about many times very like fably very legendy like leans into lore and and abstraction and this game literalizes all of that but i think they both are able to capture the same feeling 
despite coming at it from different angles. So I would I would almost like divvy those two up and say that they're both different things that you could point at as inspiration points and get very different things out of them, despite a lot of people pointing at Twilight Princess and being like, oh, this is so much like Ocarina of Time. I really think it has a very unique identity and, and goals in terms of the development team and what they wanted to express and get out of it. And I think they were uh, extremely successful in doing that. On your point, I think one of the most exciting things in game development right now and in the indie scene is like teams that I think even five years ago would have obviously defaulted to making 2D indie games now have the tools and the wherewithal and the resources to make something maybe not exactly like this, but closer to this in a way that is maybe as easy as it would have been to have made the 2D thing five years ago. And there are a lot of other games you can play from, you know, post this era uh, that you could point out and be like, these are Zelda likes and these are cool. Like a lot of other bigger studios have tried doing this. I think Okami is like the number one yeah. best ever example. If you want something that's like Twilight Princess. It's literally starring. I was about, I was just going to end the episode by saying like, I know Okami exists before you at both of us until we explode. <laughs> o- I know Okami is a game that yeah. exists. Which I, I did call my favorite game of all time for a long time. Uh, big, uh, really? I'm a big Okami fan. Yeah. Um, Okami is great. And I think it's a good example of like clearly pulling inspiration, but is also extremely distinct. Yeah. Like, I think it it doesn't feel like a ripoff in any way, even though it's literally a Zelda like starring a wolf around the same time this game came out somehow avoids that entirely with like a very unique art style. And also unique gameplay with like the calligraphy and everything. Yeah, it's amazing. Okami's awesome. Yeah, it's, yeah. An, it's an amazing video game. But yeah, you, you know, you have things like Okami to a lesser extent. But I mean, a lot of people I think would agree with this. Like the Darksiders trilogy are Zelda likes yeah. as well. Um, I could never really get into them personally, but like they're out there. People are making these things. Uh, and I, I think as much as I will always point to Nintendo as like the group that will make the thing that probably redefines how we consider this IP and this franchise and Zelda as like a video game series. Um, also equally excited for seeing more developers just like openly say Zelda is the inspiration point for this. Uh, and, I, and I'm hopeful that more people serve that audience. It also, you never know what genres it will lead to. Cause I think a game like binding of Isaac is pulling inspiration from the first Zelda yes. in a way that is like very loose. And, yeah. and that game is now like the godfather of its own genre. Right. You know? So I'm really happy this game is getting reevaluated. I'm very happy. I got a chance to replay it and to like reevaluate my own opinion of it. Cause mm. I think it's really special and I agree, I, even though it's not like my personal favorite entry, like I do think it's a great source of inspiration for a untold future of the series. Yeah. Yeah. That's a bonus episode, baby. <laughs> we did it. This is the first first one in months. I know we said this on air, but like Brendan and I were recognizing that it's been since Majora's Mask that we've made a bonus because we had to reschedule this a few times and then game of the year happened, which was a lot of fun. But like that kind of consumes everything else. So very happy to begin the year with this one. And thank you all so much for listening. Really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this one. Yeah. I think you and I had a great time. Yeah. This is one of those ones where I, I wish we had more stuff to talk about. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine we could, but it would just be rambly and not worth it probably. Uh, but sup YouTube. Here are my favorite breeds of Uku. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Thank you for playing this game. Uh, and me. Yes. Wow. And I, I think, you know, you, you and I talk about this a lot on and off the show, but I do think recalibrating your own opinion and revisiting things, the year of second chances um, is like, it's just like such a joy and such a blessing to be able to do via this podcast. It's like, 
so cool that I think, you know, of all the things that we claim to want to do with Into the Aether, like this is one of the, I think, most rewarding things that we do on a pretty regular basis. Just the ability to like sit down and be like, I will never finish this game or I will never replay this game. But because we're doing a bonus about it, like here's the impetus to actually do it uh, is great. It rocks. I totally agree. I, I think like, you know, it's a nice reminder, like as as the show grows and as we take more and more on and as we become more ambitious, this episode has kind of reminded me of like why we started the show in the first place. Mm. You know, it's like rooted in this formative memory of when you fell in love with video games and getting to hear you explain why and share my own experience. Like it's why we do it. And I never forgot that, but it's nice to be reminded. Yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah, totally. It's nice to realize that people can hear me even though I'm a wolf in another dimension. <laughs> Everybody looks like candles. <laughs> Blue candles. Thank you so much for listening. One thing too, if you if you heard tail that we made that playlist and you're like, I want it, uh, we will have shared it, but it is on Spotify called Twilight Princess Emo Icon. Uh, and it's it's a collaborative playlist from me and Brendan. So uh, if you want that, it exists. We had a lot of fun making it. And uh, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Uh, bye. <laughs> no wolves allowed in my bar. Uh, we didn't even talk about talking to the cat. I love the cat oh, so yeah. much. The cat's really good. Yeah, we didn't talk about the fact that when you're a wolf, you can just talk to animals at all. I think the, <laughs> the frogs in Ordon Village are like maybe some of the best characters in video games. I will say, speaking of talking to animals, uh, our next bonus, in case you forgot, is going to be Baldur's Gate 3, which is extremely exciting. You can talk to animals in that one. You can. It's possible. You can drink a potion to talk to animals. You can just learn a spell. There's a cow who tells you where chests are. <laughs> which is very Dragon Quest. It is very Dragon Quest. Before we sign off completely into the cast out online, it's where you can find us everywhere. Uh, we are on social media platforms. We have a discord that you can join. That is great and full of a bunch of lovely people. Uh, and we also have a Patreon that you can join. Uh, we have a bunch of tiers. You can check them out and get a bunch of different rewards based on those tiers. Thank you so much to everybody who is backing us on Patreon. It makes the show possible. Thank you. Also, we've gotten another influx of Apple podcast reviews. Um, if you haven't done that and feel like doing it, that would mean a lot to both of us. And we also now officially have a merch store. This is the first bonus we've done since we launched the merch store, which is probably worth shouting out. So shop.intothecast.online. You can find a bunch of stuff there that we think is funny and cool and good uh, in, in equal measure. <laughs> so head over to intothecast.online for all of that stuff. And I think that's it. Again, this is an episode I wish we could just keep recording, but we've been recording or we've been on this phone call at least for almost five hours. So I'm going to sign off. Uh, <laughs> my name is Brendan Bigley. You can find me around at Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilger. You can find me in the Twilight Realm screaming at the sky until my lord and savior Ganondorf fuses <laughs> with my mind and what he wants, I want too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.